Marquez crashes, Lorenzo finally wins again, and unbelievably, those two are on the most unthinkable of collision courses. MotoGP silly season is sillier than ever. Welcome to Bike Life. Let's go! Yes, this is episode 63 of Bike Life here on Motorsport 101. As we look back on arguably MotoGP's jewel in the crown, the Italian Grand Prix at Mugello. But MotoGP silly season has become so silly that it's even managed to upstage MotoGP's own jewel in the crown. We have so much to talk about on this week's edition of Bike Life as Lorenzo reclaims his land at Mugello last weekend with his first victory in the red of Ducati, even though it might well be his last as he prepares to depart that team for one of the most incredible and unthinkable partnerships in MotoGP history. More on that later on in the show. We'll also cover the brilliance of Moto2 as it produced its race of the season, Miguel Oliveira, with something of a surprise victory in the end. And the Moto3 bonfire, which didn't quite materialise in the end, even though we got a intriguing tactical battle at the front between the three championship pace setters. As mentioned, we'll cover all of the silly season news uh, that broke this week as four of the major pieces in next year's championship puzzle were finally put into place, with one rider, one of the legends of the sport in recent years, potentially left out in the cold with no ride whatsoever. Uh, we'll also look ahead to this weekend, World Superbikes returns, and it returns to the Czech Republic and Brno for the first time in six years, with Jonathan Ray looking to mark its return with an all-time World Superbike record for the most wins in the history of the series. So, so much to talk about this week. And joining me once again to do it is Andre Harrison. I mean, as I mentioned, Dre, it says a lot when MotoGP's most prestigious race, arguably on the calendar, is upstaged by a quite chaotic week of silly season chat. See, I personally thought it was a really quiet 10 days. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, you're absolutely, you're absolutely quite right. Uh, hi, everybody. And um, yeah, this was um, organized chaos, I think is the word we're looking for here to describe the last week and a half or so. Um, it, it says a lot when Jorge Lorenzo's first win in, God, a year and a half is like third on the list of crazy shit that's gone down. So, yeah, um, we're going to struggle to keep this to two hours, but hey, we'll, we'll do our best to get through it anyway, because uh, my word, there's a lot to dissect here. <laughs> well, we'll give it a go. It just it kind of brings to mind that gif of, uh, of the guy walking through the door to see his house in flames. It's kind of like going on holiday for 10 days in GP. It's like, oh, did I miss anything? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if in case you have, you might need to listen to this two hours because there's a lot to catch up on. But first of all, here are the places you can get in touch with us. Um, starting on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. On Twitter, we are at motorsport underscore 101. Uh, if you want to tweet us on there. Um, our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Um, our Patreon page, if you want to back us financially and yourself early access to both of our weekly podcasts, is patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101 five dollar backing earns you early access to our weekly podcast ten dollar backing earns you access to our discord server and the ability to listen to these shows live as they happen all the information surrounding all of that is on our new website motorsport101.com and and if you go there right now you will find the latest episode episode 143 um, of motorsport 101 which to people like me um, who don't follow IndyCar regularly, it might seem like a bit of a confusing title because essentially, Dre, it follows or centers around Ryan and the Lion. Explain. Um, yes. Turns out that uh, a certain Ryan Hunter Ray in the Verizon series said that if he won race two in Detroit that, that weekend, he would, and I quote, 
take a dip in Detroit's uh, Belle Isle fountain. So guess what happened on Sunday? Of course, so after Scott Dixon made made history and became the third most winning driver in the history of IndyCar, I don't use like that's just an American term. Um, <laughs> But within this year, he passed Michael Andretti on the all-time win list in his 42nd IndyCar victory and extends his own record of winning 14 consecutive IndyCar seasons. Um, yeah, Dixon taking race one. Ryan Hunter Ray basically bullying his own teammate into submission into winning race two as Alex Rossi uh, basically blew his tyres into oblivion, um, trying to hold off a very rapid uh, yellow submarine in Ryan Hunter Ray during race two so yeah all the news and all the talk from both indycar duel in detroit races and a preview towards next week as well technically this week now because it's texas this weekend and after the last couple of years it's bound to be absolutely bonkers um so yeah the duel in detroit and ryan hunter ray celebrating on a lion um trust me we do explain a much better job of explaining it on episode 143 of m101 which is out well, by the time you listen to this, it'll be out now. So listen yep. in. So go ahead and listen to that. Right, let's get cracking with episode 63 of Black Lives because we've got a lot uh, to cover. Um, MotoGP, as I mentioned, it's kind of, although it doesn't officially have a jewel in the crown like a Le Mans, like an Indy 500, like a Monaco Grand Prix, this is possibly the race that we look forward to the most and the race that carries with it the most prestige and uh, just the most excitement, particularly given who the majority, if not the entirety, of the fans in attendance turn up to watch. Um, and before we get to the race itself, Dre, we kind of have to talk about qualifying and what we saw on the Saturday because, um, as you mentioned on Saturday, it's the kind of scripts that only Michael Baker come up with. For Valentino Rossi, who's not had the greatest of seasons, and you can argue that's not all been entirely his own fault, given that Yamaha don't appear to have a bike that's anywhere near as competitive as the Ducati or the Honda right about now. Um, right. Certainly in race trim, if not in qualifying trim. Valentino Rossi hadn't qualified on the front row of the grid at all so far this season. Uh, but true to form, given his script writer Dre, he rocks up a yellow and whacks it on pole. Of course! Of course! <laughs> Just like the form book suggested, the form book is on fire and has been thrown out of the yeah. window. I love him um... all over him. The scenes when he took that pole position. And the scenes pre-race as he went round to circulate to go into pole position. The kind of scenes you just don't get really in any other sport with any other sportsman. No, it's I mean I mentioned it on Twitter. There is no one in motorsport history that has this man's appeal and reach. It is the smoke from the yellow flares on the home straight and on the background stand coming down the hill. Um incredible scenes incredible scenes that track exploded when they found out Valentino Rossi was on pole. Um, and word filtered through quite quickly. It was insane. I mean, you're looking at over 80,000, um, and the vast majority of them were there for Valentino. I mean, it blessed the Ducati stand down the back in red, who were like, hey, we actually won! Great! Yeah. Um, so here to spoil the party, so to speak. Um, but um, unbelievable scenes, an in, in incredible spectacle. Valentino, I mean, it's 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 almost unsurprisingly yet surprising when Valentino is able to pull a rabbit out of the hat like this. Like he still has a knack of doing so, even at the grand old age at 38. Um, that was a brilliant pole position. It was in the right place at the right time. 
Um, everybody was overheating their tyre. So, I mean, it was essentially a matter of who can just basically manage themselves to channel the speed into producing the best possible lap. And it was Valentino who was able to to rock that balance to perfection, which was crazy because it was a, there was sort of quite a fine session where five or six teams could have easily put it on pole. Marquez had a lap that was half a second quicker halfway through, but again, made two, made two big mistakes and had a almighty godlike Marquez save again on the final corner where it looked like he'd gone. And... Was able to prop it back up on his knee. I don't know how. Still don't know how he does that to this day. Um, but uh, it was an absolutely bonkers qualifying session. And of course, in a bonkers qualifying session, at Majello Valentino Rossi put, goes out on top. Of, of course. Yeah. Of course. Incredible story. <laughs> and uh, credit to MotoGP. Their social media their team were always right on the ball with stuff like this. And they put the last couple of minutes of Q2 onto the onto their Facebook page for everyone to watch for free. And yeah, it was uh-huh. it was thrilling sport. Uh, it has to be said. And. Um, thanks to the always brilliant Martin Reigns, MotoGP statistician, um, for this one. Valentino Rossi, the oldest rider to top a qualifying session in the premier class of Grand Prix racing since Jack Finley at the 1974 Isle of Man TT, <laughs> which is which is ridiculous. Um, Jesus. It, which uh, which brings us nicely on to his next stat, in that the last rider in MotoGP to win from pole position was Mark Marquez at Phillip Island last year. That ta- tag uh, or that statistic is still intact. Because Valentino Rossi did not win uh, on the Sunday. That order went to Jorge Lorenzo, and um, he blasted into the lead at the start trade, grabbing the whole shot as Jorge Lorenzo often used to do and often has done since Johnny Ducati. Only with Ducati, he would often fade late in the race, but it quickly became apparent by around half distance that this was the old Jorge Lorenzo back at work. It was. It, it took us about half the race for us, I think, for me to certainly to realise. Guys, he's not fading, you know. Um, (laughs) That's been the story. Yeah, that was the story of Lorenzo since Yeah, he was able to get his signature hole shot down and, you know, be able to have a great start and take the lead, you know, often on the softer tyre, so he had more grip at the start of the race. Um, But this time he didn't fade. If anything, he pulled the gap out while everybody else was fighting each other. Lorenzo just took control of the race and took off. Um, It was... A magnificent performance. It really was. Um, just f- vintage, flawless um, Jorge Lorenzo on that one. That never looked like he was in any sort of trouble. Um, he always had an extra half by Clem with everybody else. And if anything, as mentioned, he just, he just second half of the race, he, he pulled away. That's normally the part where he fades. But instead, he actually just put the hammer down and just destroyed everybody. It was It was unbelievable. And... You know, what can you say? Um, that that if you if you didn't know any better, you'd think that that was a guy in, in blue again, just to say the least. And I'm feeling time a little bit here because I do want to pull out. Yeah, here it is. The graphic they, they, they showed during the end of the race, two laps to go, they showed up. They showed Lorenzo's race pace. Mm. Um, I'll give you a running order of the laps. This is from lap two of the race. 48-1, 48-3, 48-2, 48-1, 48 2, 48 1, 48 1, 48 1, 48 2, 48 3, 48 2, 48 3. Beat that. 13, yeah, 13 consecutive laps within basically 0.1 of each other. It's when that, that was when you know Lorenzo is it is when it's just, you know, just that sort of just metronomic pace where. Once he, he's he's a rhythm racer, Lorenzo. He always has been. He's always at his worst when someone punches him in the nose. Um, but if you let him to, if you let him get his rhythm going, he is incredibly hard to beat. And this was another example of that. And you know, 
no one has really dominated a race quite like that without Ryder Error behind win that race by I think it was, was something like six and a half seconds in the end. It was uh, an unbelievable performance and one that shocked them because everyone was thinking, like, I remember the, as a bookies guy, I was sitting back and the bookies couldn't call it. Like Marquez was 12 to five. Rossi was 13 to five. Dovi was 16 to five. The 16 to one Lorenzo goes on and wins the race, of course. So <laughs> bookies laughing on this one. Trust me on this. But um, yeah, that was a, a, a genuine surprise given how we've seen Lorenzo struggle with this Chicati. But um, I will say this, just a great result for the sport to have one of its greatest back at the front where he belongs. I was, actually, I was going to come on to that. We'll, we'll talk about that now. I mean, Lorenzo, in his interview after the race, the one he gave to BT Sport in part of it was, was brilliant. And it was in many ways classic Hawkeye. And I understand why many people, he doesn't exactly uh, endear himself to people when he speaks like this, but it was almost a sort of, it was a bit of an "I told you so" interview, um, right. which I thought, which I thought was a little unnecessary, but I can kind of allow it, given that he's just won the race. He feels on top of the world, um, mm-hmm. and he was essentially saying that, "Look, I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for the bike that sort of suits me, that I feel comfortable on." And I, of course, much was made of the new fuel tank that Ducati brought to this race, which are now enabled Jorge Lorenzo to feel fully comfortable on the bike, and crucially, not fatigue. Uh, late in races by the way he's having to ride the bike he's now able to ride the bike the way he wants and feel comfortable without it tiring him out by by sort of half distance in a grand prix um and he sort of said essentially i'm paraphrasing here and putting words in his mouth but he's essentially saying that now i've got this bike here's the result um and i'm not quite as certain as to say that oh look he's clearly back now because i think we need to see a few more races yet to be certain that this is truly where Jorge's level is once again um, I mean, look, if, you, if we go to Catalonia next time and he does this again, maybe we'll talk, but he, he, he's just as likely in my mind to be sort of back in sort of fringes to the top six again. We shall see. But as you say, Dre, the, the underlying point is Jorge Lorenzo is one of the greatest riders, arguably in the history of MotoGP Grand Prix motorcycle racing. Certainly in the last 15 to 20 years, he's in the top three all time. Mm-hmm. Um, he's won five world championships across all classes, including three in MotoGP. Um, last of which, of course, came three years ago, 2015, that infamous title battle with Valentino Rossi. A lot of words are often used to describe Jorge. The one I tend to go with more often than not is misunderstood, because um, I think a lot yeah. of people sort of misunderstand his arrogance for for that, or his his, his demeanour for arrogance. When I think he's just he's just confident and knows his own skin. Um, but as you say, no one, and I, I know Valentino Rossi fans may argue otherwise, and perhaps Mark Marquez fans will argue otherwise, but. I struggle to argue that Jorge Lorenzo being back at the top of his game again is anything but good for the sport. This is the same sport and its same audience that couldn't believe it two years ago when we had nine different race winners. And I've I've, I've mentioned this before, and and I'll talk about Lorenzo personally again in a bit. It's some of those things where it's like, I... I've been watching bike racing. You so do you lose for about about twenty years between uh, you know each between us, and it wasn't that long ago that we were talking about this series as a sport where only guys on four bikes could win. You either, it was either the two in blue, the two in orange, or some guy called Casey, and that was literally it. Um, the last two or three years has blown this sport wide open. We It's been more competitive and more unpredictable than we've ever seen. We've had multiple guys join the win-on-two manufacturers club, like Maverick Vinales has, like Jorge Lorenzo now has with this victory. Um, it's This is 
exactly what some of the detractors of MotoGP wanted. They wanted more competitive balance, and we've gotten that now. And I'm Lorenzo. He's he's a bit of an enigma in that sense. And I I used to be one of those guys that was quite cynical about Jorge in the past. And I've come around a lot in recent years because I've come to the realization that not everybody is going to be this eccentric James Hinchcliffe, you know, Daniel Ricciardo sort of guy where they're all going to be exuberant, charismatic, you know, slightly OTT characters, which appeal to casual motorsport fans all the time. Because the amount of people I see gush over Ricciardo every race weekend, it's like, oh, look, he trimmed his mustache. Look, oh, yeah. what a character he is. Actually, um, you know, for, for those that, those that criticize Jorge Lorenzo for the way he carries himself, in many ways, MotoGP, has become as great as it is for that because you know one of the names you, you perhaps didn't mention there is of course Valentino Rossi and for mm. for every Valentino Rossi you need a you know for everyone to sort of rally behind this guy you need an opposite you need a uh, to use a better term a villainous figure and I'm not saying Jorge Lorenzo is by any means a villain but obviously the eyes of many he is and in that yeah, respect absolutely. you need someone who's slightly different you don't you know if everyone's like Valentino if everyone's like Mark Marquez then who do you rally behind? Yeah, forgive me for the shameless plug here, but I talked about this on a Dre Brief episode a couple of years ago when I talked about Lorenzo was the Lex Luthor of MotoGP. And I, it, it came from a comment when James... I think it was, it was Aragon, I want to say, 2015. The race that Lorenzo won, it was when Pedrosa beat Rossi in that dogfight. And, and Lorenzo had won by a good half-dozen seconds. He won the race. He gave the shark fin celebration mm. in the pit lane. And I normally really like his punditry, but James Tozen came out and said, this is why he's not going to be another Valentino. No, that's exactly what the sport needs. We need someone that isn't. Yeah, we need some showmanship. And like, I, I will always, like, I have an infinite amount of respect for dudes who can stunt, but also back up the shit. And Lorenzo has always been able to do that in one way or another. And I, I know people have said, oh, you know, look at all the Lorenzo guys turning. Listen, we can be critical of a, of a guy's performance and still be happy for him to get back to the front of the field because we know the sport is better when he's at the front. We are capable of more than one fought at a time. Cold, cold so, as uh, we see it. Yeah, we call it as we see it. And like, if anything, with sport on social media now, it's a lot more instant gratification these days than we did 10 years ago. But overall, like, Lorenzo is has always been confident. And you know what? Confidence and arrogance is, is like, the line can often get blurred, but I've never said that cockiness or arrogance is a bad thing. These are guys that are hopping over a fairing and riding a 260 horsepower bike, in this case, at 220 miles an hour. Mm. Um, if they weren't a little bit confident in their abilities, they'd be in a hedge like like years ago, having tried and failed to be bike riders. To get to this level, you've got to have at least a shred of self-belief in yourself. And I will never, ever criticize Jorge Lorenzo. The fact that, you know, basically... Lorenzo was once criticized for being a showman in a sport with its greatest showman, made a name for himself, and is a big reason as to why Valentino is as popular as he is. I find that mind-boggling that, you know, if anybody else tries to be Valentino, it's like, oh, you can't do that, but you never criticize Valley for being a showman. It's 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 BS like that, which I can't stand about bike fans, to be honest with you. But Lorenzo has always been a grafter. He's always been, you know to a degree arrogant but again i don't i don't see that as a bad thing i never have and 
like he's always been that guy. He's always been a, an individual. He's always been generous of his time, to be fair, but he's always had a high level of ability, a high moral value as a bike rider, as a human being, as a guy that's often had to fight losing battles against guys like Marco Simoncelli and Danny Pedrosa for, you know, over-aggressive moves. He's always been the guy to speak up about against. He's always been unafraid to back down against people as well. Um, like, I will have an infinite amount of respect for Lorenzo the person because he doesn't he doesn't take no shit from anyone and that is a hard thing to do in a sport that has let's be honest megalomaniac egos left right and center especially mm. the one in yellow so like superman needs a villain and the whole point of superman as a story not to get too comic book nerdy is about how a god lives amongst men and lex luthor's entire motivation to stop superman was that his basically he didn't want the world to be too reliant on someone that's basically a god um and i think sometimes we need the breath of fresh air to remind us that there's more than one personality trait in this sport and i think lorenzo does that better than anyone and i, and I would argue to anybody try and be the best in your sport and not have an ego you know how, how, how can you not because you have to have a level of confidence in yourself um, mm -hmm. to be that good and, and we mentioned the Lorenzo Rossi dynamic there was actually a, a brilliant exchange between the two of them in, in the post-race press conference on the Sunday after yeah, was, yes. Lorenzo won the race and Valentino Rossi had finished third um, where uh, to sort of give the rough details of the story Lorenzo essentially I think he'd been on a holiday to somewhere in Spain with his partner before that race and he kind of referenced that as being a, a part of his preparation and um, helping him win this weekend of Valentino Rossi came out of the instant yeah. reply of, you, you'll have to go there before I'd be raced then. Um, yeah. which, which was very funny. And Lorenzo essentially suggested to Valentino that they should double date um, and go there <laughs> in the future. And, uh, and they had a, they had a very warm handshake and the media centre applauded and it was brilliant. And then that, that's what we want to see between our... Yeah, we want of course. Them to, we want them to be... Yeah, we want them to be as... as as, as big rivals as they want to be on track but out off track as long as there's a level of respect um i think we're all happy with that and there was certainly there certainly appeared to be a a level a genuine level of respect and i think there always has been between valentino and Jorge because i don't think you can um be as sort of vitriolic towards each other on track and off track unless you clearly treat the guy as a huge rival you clearly see that guy as a threat otherwise you wouldn't be behaving them towards them that way so there's clearly right. an underlying respect um between the two um, and I think in general, the sport was happy for Jorge on Sunday to see him back at his best again because they understood um, what that meant um, for the sport. Um, Ducati got a 1-2 at the end, but the main reason they got a 1-2 is because of what happened much earlier in the race. We don't actually know whether they would have won the race at all had Marc Marquez stayed upright for the entire Grand Prix. Because if Marc Marquez crashed out around a third of the way into the Grand Prix whilst running second behind Jorge Lorenzo, um, we'll never know whether he would have chased Jorge to the flag or even beaten him to the flag. But just in general, Dre, and I don't want to criticise Mark too much because he's, he's, he's an outstanding rider and he's the best in the world without question and he's leading the championship still. But didn't it strike you as a bit of a strange race for Mark given that he'd said in that same weekend how he was riding for the championship, he was going to ride to collect points on Sunday. And then from pretty much the moment the red lights went out, we didn't see that at all from Mark. He almost... Um, sideswiped poor Jack Miller out of the race completely. Um, yeah. Or, uh, I don't know, it was Petrucci, wasn't it, on the first lap where he pretty much rode yeah. through the middle of him into turn two, um, which I think he was, perhaps on another day, would have been slightly lucky not to get some sort of penalty for that. Um, right. But then, just, not just for that, but the aggression that followed, which led to the eventual crash, which essentially ended his race, or ended any contention of scoring points. 
given what you said previously, it was a strange race from Mark, wasn't it? It was. It was a strange weekend in general from Mark. The speed was obviously there, but um, I, I, I remember distinctively Neil Hodson said in commentary in the pre-race about Marquez. He had a chat with him the night before, and this was after a qualifying session where Marquez could have gone into the 45s. Um, you get, there was, if people don't, didn't, may not notice this during the qualifying session, about four minutes to go, Marquez started his second run, and he was half a second clear of Valentino Rossi's lap halfway in, but it all fell away because he almost lost it. On the same chicane, he ended up crashing in on Sunday. And he was thinking about a hard front tyre again, like he did in Le Mans. Um, but he said to Hodson, on, off the record, the night before, he was going to wing it. He didn't have an idea as to what tyre was the right one to use. Because the hard the majority... tyre was still too soft for Honda. Yeah. Yeah, it was too it was too soft for Honda. So they, he might like they, like they basically Marquez made the wrong decision. He made the wrong decision. He put the wrong front tire on. He should have gone with soft medium or medium medium like the rest of the field did. This like it, it's clear that he was the only Honda really that could have challenged for the win this weekend. Crutchlow was midfield really. Pedrosa had a horrendous weekend, which we'll get to. Um, like. Marquez, he got it wrong on this occasion, tire-wise, and you could see he was overriding the bike to even keep it in second. Um, and it was like Magello a couple of years ago, just overdid it and just crashed out. And it was after that, a couple of years ago, where Marquez got his head down and realised, okay, now I am in a championship. I've got to, I've got to be conservative about this. And the thing about Marquez, as always, he these very quickly. I mean, after the last one, he ended up winning the next three. Um, so, like, he bounces back. He always does. Um, but at this point, I'm not even surprised anymore. Um, so, expect him to go out harder, Catalonia, because he probably will. That's what that's what Marquez does. Yeah, I mean, the speed was there. It was just, I feel like this was just a bad weekend for Honda in general. Like, Crutchlow was in that second group, but he wasn't able to pass anybody, which is a bit of a Crutchlow problem, really, in general, to be honest. He's in these packs, but he never makes overtakes unless he's at the front. It's really weird. Um, but, like I said, just an uncompetitive weekend for Honda in general, just a little bit all over the place, really. And, again, it was it was like bad Honda had crept back in for a second where Marquez is the only Honda worth a damn in that in the in the top six. Um, it, it was weird. Um uncharacteristic, shall we say, of modern-day Marquez. But uh, he'll be back. I'm, I'm dead certain of that. I think it was just, you know, one excursion too many. And, my God, he still nearly saved that one as well, um, which is yeah. Perhaps if the time ludicrous. hadn't continued and it hadn't reached gravel, he might have done. Yeah, he, yeah, I think he might have done if he, if he, if he held on to a little bit of gas on that one. But, uh, yeah, it's, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a bit of a messy weekend for uh, for Marquez on this one but again I'm, I'm sure he will bounce back at Catalonia in a couple of weeks time mm. and in the end as I mentioned it led to a Ducati 1-2 with Lorenzo taking the win from Andrea De Vizioso who didn't really have the best of weekends prior to that didn't appear to have the greatest of pace pre-race but obviously as he's started to become quite an expert in recent recent seasons, he comes on strong in the race and for both him and for Valentino Rossi to get on the podium they're both I mean, whether we think they're going to win the championship is a separate debate entirely because Mark Marquez is still the strong favourite. But at the very least, Dre, it does at least give us a little hint that Mark Marquez isn't necessarily going to run away and win this by mid-season. Um, the fact that he's scored no points. He did remount, by the way, in that race with Jello, but finished 16th once, but outside the points. He was perhaps hoping for a bit more attrition to bring him back into the points. 
Um, mm-hmm. But Valentino Rossi's got up to second now in the championship with that podium. Um, he's 23 points off the championship leader, so remarkably, given how this season has gone for both of those two riders, um, and of course that has included a collision with each other in Argentina, um, there is less than a race win between them at the top of the championship, which perhaps none of us really saw coming um, at any stage right. this season. Um, but also for Andrea Di Vizioso, who's only six points behind Rossi, he was 49 points back going into this race weekend, which is way too many, and arguably past the limit of how far back he can afford to be and still be in contention. So for, for Andre Di Vizioso, if he does have long-term aspect, aspirations of winning this championship, which he surely does, it was important that he did take advantage of Marc Marquez not being in contention and not scoring points. So for him to take a 20-point bite out of Marquez's lead was important. Very important. And going into this, Dovi was 49, I think, back on Marquez. And at that point, you're thinking title over for Dovi. Now it's like, ooh, okay, let's see if Dovi can actually claw back the points the same way that Marquez did a couple of years back. Uh, or last year, I should say, technically speaking. But, um, okay, um, it's a, um, a little bit of a concern that Dovi was, you know, so far back off his teammate. That's a fair criticism in any case, especially given he very nearly in for second as well and that would have been that would have been a very silly four points to concede um given he backed right off on the final lap and rossi was only a, a bike length or two behind him going over the line i don't know if if, if dovi had just had a problem or just didn't realize that valentino was right there um i don't know what that was all about but um yeah dovi vital 20 points for the title race there 20 points gained on marquez almost effectively cancels out the uh, dnf he had at le mans and yeah, he's back in conceivable range of, of, of the top of the championship, which is good. Um, Marquez probably owes Lorenzo a beer for winning that race, funnily enough. And um, shout out to Dovi for setting not one, but two new MotoGP speed records this weekend yeah. as well, worth a mention. Yeah. Um, a mere 356.5 kilometers an hour on that one. In Queen's English, that's 221.5 miles an hour um, over a brined crest going into turn one. <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah, it's terrifying. Also actually, much like Marquez, claimed that he'd chosen the wrong tyre um, pre-race. Mm. He went for the harder tyre as well and just said it didn't work for him and that he'd, um, by the end of the race, not only had he chosen the wrong front tyre, but he'd also used up the rear tyre um, and was Yikes. able to manage that at the end of the race, which I think was part of the reason why Valentino closed in, but I think part of the reason as well why he got so close was because Dobby had just buttoned it right off. Uh, was yeah. trying to just consolidate the 20 points, realising how important they were for the championship. But as I mentioned, second in the championship now, remarkably, given that he's probably got the third best bike in the field at the moment, um, is Valentino Rossi, having converted that pole position into a third place. Um, now, it's it, again, it would be very, too, very premature to suggest that Valentino Rossi is suddenly now right in championship contention. I mean, in points terms, he is. Um, but in terms of the competitiveness of his bike, he probably isn't because he hasn't looked like winning a race yet this season um, and hasn't finished in the top two yet. He's had three podiums, all of which were third places. Um, but it, it, I think we're probably talking about him, Dre, in the same way that we're talking, or you were talking about Scott Dixon on Motorsport 101 this week, in that mm. he's always there. Whatever the parameters, whatever the conditions, whatever the equipment, he's always there. And somehow through six races, a third of the way through the season... Valentino Rossi is somehow second in the championship and only 23 off the lead. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, I mentioned this with Dixon, you're absolutely right. It was same in the Indy 500. Dixon was nowhere. He wasn't in contention. He took a late fuel stop, had that's a fuel save at the end of the race. 
But Dixon, who was nowhere really, never really looked like he was going to win the still found the way to finish in second. Um, it's just what Dixon does. And, you know, Dixon's always in the mix. He doesn't have very many truly bad days at the office. And it's the same with Valentino Rossi, is that I used the comparison on our Discord a few times as well this week, talking to guys like Brian about this and saying that, yeah, like Maverick's ceiling is higher within that team when the bike is working well, because Maverick's been able to, you know, since they've been together, Maverick's won three races and Valley's only won the once. Um, but the floor is a lot better with Valentino than it is, than it is. With, with Maverick. And Val- when, when, there's, when the bike's not performing, Valentino Rossi finds a way to, to churn out performances week in, week out. He doesn't crash very often. He might be good for one DNF a year in terms of just sheer rider error. He just doesn't make them, really. He knows where the limit is on that bike most of the time, which is ironic because Dovey pointed out post-race that he saw Rossi lose the front three times at the start of the race and he was able to cling on to it, basically. Um, so it could have been a disastrous weekend um, for Valley. We may not have even known about it, but Dovey was the guy who was behind him and he saw that Rossi had made two or three big, big near misses. Um, but, uh, yeah, um that that's Rossi for you. It's he, he always finds a way, and he's. I, I hate to borrow Keith Ewan's corny ass. It, it's a Sunday man phrase, but that's exactly what Valentino Rossi is. He's a race guy. He's always better in race trim, and he's never really that far off the victory most of the time. Anyway, he he finds a way to churn out the best results he can, and that's that's what he's been doing so well for the last two or three years. Even though the bike isn't the competitive weapon it was a couple of years ago. And we, we've had the discussions about the, the differences between him and Maverick. And uh, we'll talk about Maverick separately um, a little bit later. But in terms of the difference, I think, between the two of them, and we've covered this already in terms of Valentino Rossi getting more out of the bike when the bike's not performing. Uh, mm. I think Valentino Rossi's just in a better headspace. I think just has more mental toughness and mental yeah. strength than, than Maverick, Maverick Nial is in that. Because what really struck me after the race in that Valentino Rossi qualified on pole position and yet finished third, which made me think, well... How happy is he going to be with this? Because he'd have probably lined up on the grid hoping to win the Grand Prix. But he had said after qualifying in part Fermi that the race is going to be much more difficult. Um, and he seemed genuinely delighted yeah. to finish third behind the two Ducatis. Yeah. Um, which I think just really hits on where Valentino Rossi is in his head right now. He's, he's, he's almost come to terms with... I'm not going to say he's happy with it, but he's come to terms with where Yamaha are competitively. And he's just getting on with it. Um, he's just getting the best yeah. out of what he's got and maximising the points, which his teammate is not doing. Um, and he's he's keeping himself in contention, whereas if Yamaha somehow do find a magic bullet mid-season and make that bike a race-winning contender again, he's giving himself a chance. He's keeping himself somewhere in the argument that will enable him to perhaps have make a play later in the season. I'm not saying Yamaha are going to make that step, because I still think they're a long way away, but at least Valentino Rossi is putting the points on the board and keeping himself semi-in contention. Um, which right. is important, and and as I say, I, I said this pre-show before we started. I think he's carrying that team on his back at the moment, given that um, Maverick Vinales has only actually finished ahead of him in a race they both finished once this year, and that was the race in Cota. Um, they've the races they've finished since then that they've both finished. Um, Valentino Rossi's been ahead of him in all of them, um, which is a worry for Maverick, and we'll talk about him shortly um, as we get to him because he finished down in eighth ahead of him in fourth and fifth were the two Suzukis. Uh, of Andrea Inone and Alex Rins, who finished pretty much side by side as they went across the line, uh, with Inone slightly ahead um, of his teammate. Um, now, in the running order, for those that obviously don't see our running order, as we posted it on Discord, I've put in um, inverted commas, Inone only fourth, um, which is 
which might sound a bit harsh given that Suzuki um, have been trading in the occasional podium really this season uh, and fourth by any measure is a good result in MotoGP but given how quick he'd got in free practice straight he dominated both sessions on Friday he was quickest in FP4 as well mm-hmm. would we be forgiven for thinking that Inoni and Suzuki might hope for a little more than that? I don't think that's an unfair question to ask if if you're if you're a neutral watching that because yeah Suzuki has dabbled in podiums this season and Ian Oni has you know this weekend was the strongest I've seen Ian Oni ride since maybe Austria a couple of years ago when Ducati was basically born to win that weekend. Um, it, it, it was a weird one. Ian Oni was fast all weekend, was fastest in almost every practice session. Um, Ian Oni should have really been thinking about the the victory. I don't think he would have been unfair to say he was probably thinking about it, given how and fast... He, and he looked like he had the pace to beat Valentino at the end of the race, but he just couldn't beat him on the brakes, could he? Yeah, he just couldn't beat him on the brake, and he, he overcooked it so many times. He made so many little errors, go, like breaking under turn one, that he let everybody else back in. He let Dovi through, he couldn't beat Rossi, and then he only just narrowly beat his teammate in the end, Alex Rins, who had been nowhere all weekend... And Rins all of a sudden just comes in and steals the fifth place out of the back door like that. So, Vio Suzuki, you're delighted you got both bikes in the top five. That's a fantastic result by any measure. And against, especially for, for Rins, who needed a big result after a string of crashes. Um, but yeah, Ian Oni, you wouldn't have been begrudged to think he was thinking for the victory on this one because, uh, yeah, his the pace certainly showed, showed it for sure. So, um, I am actually kind of surprised that. Um, yeah, that you know, he was only in fourth and, you know, looked like it could have easily been a little bit lower than that in fifth, for instance. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it did. And um, as you mentioned, a key result for Rins, I think, given that he's, well, it's, he now we now know, given what's happened this week with the silly uh, season rumours now becoming fact about Andre Inone, we'll cover them later, that Rins is essentially going to be that team's team leader next year. Um, so it was kind of important that he stopped these kind of silly crashes that have, have ruined his season so far because he's had the pace to be in a roundabout this position in just about every race so far, but he's he's fallen off far too often. Um, so key for Alex Rins that he converted it into points, and as Dre mentioned, he finished uh, just 22 thousandths of a second behind Inone at the end of the race. Cal Crutchlow was next up in sixth on the highest Honda to finish. Um, there were only two Hondas in the end that actually made it into the points at the end. The other one was Franco Bovdelli, who took the final point in 15th at the expense of Mark Marquez. Danilo Petrucci is seventh on the one Pramac to finish, um, with Jack Miller crashing out around about a third of the way through the race. We've not got a lot to add to Pramac's race, other than, Dre, how much did we adore their race day livery? Oh, bumblebees. Um, yes, I, I loved it. I loved the yellow and black. Can we keep that permanently, please? Yeah, yeah we need a bit of yellow on, on the grid, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, they, they were gorgeous. I had no idea that was coming until they announced no. it on Saturday night they were going to be racing with those liveries for the race. Um, yeah, Lamborghini, um, we believe. Yes, uh, a bit of Lamborghini in the grid. There's nothing wrong with that, right? <laughs> you know. So, yeah. Um, for uh, I was, I was, I was surprised by that. I thought it was awesome. Um, uh, please keep them. Um, I'll buy all the Pramac merch if that helps. You know, take my money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm buying. Uh, yeah, it was a beautiful, beautiful bike, and uh, in the end, Petrucci. Um, took it to seventh place, which again you'd perhaps be forgiven from his point of view for hoping for a little bit more than that, um, given that he finished on the podium there uh, last year. Uh, next up, then in eighth comes Maverick Vinales, and 
Um, there seems to be a conversation we're having after every MotoGP race at the moment with Maverick that he's um, he's not really delivering the potential of that bike and once again outperformed by his uh, substantially older teammate, Valentino Rossi, on the same bike. Um, Maverick Villar is in eighth position, Dre, and it's pretty clear once again um, that this guy seems to have some sort of problem when this bike is full of fuel because he, he did qualify on the front row of the grid, Maverick Vinales. He was third on the grid, just a tenth down on his teammate who was on pole. Yet by the end of lap one, he was 11th. And I, I've, this is like the third or fourth time this season now I've looked at the standings at the end of lap one and I thought, where the heck's Maverick gone? Right. it's It's been a trend. It's It's become a bit of a pattern now in the last... Um, you know, in, in the last half a season plus now, there Maverick just seems to struggle so much in the first half of a race. But all of a sudden, he finds an extra bucket load of pace in the second half of the race. And that the, at the second half, he's he's riding at lead speed and you know, race-winning level pace. But the first half, he drops so many positions and he loses so much time. He, he often can't make the damage up by the time he gets to the other end. It's... It's not pretty. Um, it's it's crippling and it's costing Maverick big. It's costing Maverick big points, and he's he's conceding a lot to his teammate here. Um, as a result of it, where Maverick again, when they first started the Yamaha, he was he was very fast indeed. He was challenging the best in the world. He'd won three out of the first five, and he's not won since then. It's now been over a calendar year since Maverick Vinales's last victory. Um, and yeah, it's 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 concerning, and I think that's why there's a lot of heat in the camp between him and his crew chief Ramon Ficada, who, you know, the, apparently they're looking for a replacement in that camp because it's not working with Maverick, and they need to make a change. And uh, hypothetically speaking, let's just say he's a bit lucky he's gotten that two-year extension at the moment because, uh, boy, um, if they hadn't had that tied down so quick, I wonder if they'd be giving Neil Hanzarko enough. <laughs> yeah, whether they'd be starting to doubt whether he is indeed this team's future. And, and his pace towards the end of races, when the bike's clearly much lighter on fuel, is is undoubtable. Because, I mean, we were, we were taking a look at the uh, lap charts before we started this, and at the end of lap one, Maverick Vinales was down in 11th place. But when we compare him to his teammate, who is obviously the measure on the same bike, um, by the end of lap two, Maverick Vinales was 3.8 seconds behind Valentino Rossi. And he only finished four and a half behind him. Uh, so it's, so it's it's pretty clear that once he got up to speed, he was as quick as Rossi, uh, if not quicker. Um, but he was just way too far behind by the time he finally got himself got himself sorted. And I'm also starting to take slight issue with with this theory that Valentino Rossi is better when the bike isn't working. Well, Valentino Rossi set the fastest ever two wheeled lap of Mugello in qualifying to put it on pole and finished in third, his third straight podium. So can we really argue that the bike isn't working? It's it's not it's, it's not it's not eighth place bad. It's not eighth place bad. No, it's certainly better than that. And the way Valentino's ridden that bike, it's a bit like the old Ferrari days when it was Felipe Massa. Like, what was the baseline? Was it Fernando Alonso? Or was it Felipe Massa? Was it was it was it was Alonso masking a bad car? Was or was basically Massa a true reflection of what the car was capable of? It's a similar deal here. It's like because the the, the their performances are so distant, and so far apart now, where Valentino Rossi is constantly in leading packs for wins at the moment, even if he's not necessarily getting the best possible result, he's in contention. Maverick has not been in contention. I can't think of a single race he's been in the mix for a win um, this year. So it's 
it's alarming to me that you know Maverick is a, is is basically a, a a half step behind almost every weekend now, and this didn't make any sense either. Maverick himself said after the race that. You know, he, he on paper, he had a really good weekend. He liked the bike. He liked where it was going. He qualified on the front row, which was a nice surprise. Um, he was in good position to challenge for the victory. And then that happens where he just falls to 11th on the opening lap, lost about three seconds to the leaders and never really recovered. Um, so I don't know. Like, I, I don't think they are more capable of winning races that unless it's on a really, really good track. I mean, Le Mans... That was meant to that was meant to be the Yamaha round. It didn't happen. Um, so I the bike I think is certainly a step back from its true potential and what it what from what it can really do. But it's certainly a bit better than the eighth places that Maverick seems to be hovering around at the moment. If, if and that's my opinion at least. Mm, absolutely. And uh, just to uh, emphasize, because I mentioned it's probably the third or fourth time this has happened. Now it is the third time because at the last race at Le Mans he was also eleventh at the end of the first lap um, and he qualified a little bit higher than that. Uh, Qatar, the first race of the season, perhaps the most uh, obvious example of it. By the end of lap one, uh, Maverick Bianis was 14th uh, in that race. And of Jesus. course, he did, he did come on strong then to finish fifth. Um, but he was 14th on lap one. And I don't care how good you are at the end of races, if, you, if you're down in 14th on the end of lap one, that's too far back to, to really get any kind of results out of it. Um, uh, and yeah, as I say, I think Yamaha as far as the factory team is concerned, clearly have their issues at the moment. But I think the issues that Maverick has um, go beyond the bike. He's having his own problems that, that are exacerbating it because the bench line, mm-hmm. no matter how poor that, that 2018 factory M1 is, it's not as bad as eighth position uh, at the end of Grand Prix. And as I say, he was 11 at the end of lap one and two of the places he gained to get up to eighth, or two of the three places he gained were through riders crashing ahead of him because Marquez and Miller um, both fell off. Um, earlier in that race. So, um, yeah, questions to be answered from Maverick Vinales, even though he is, because he was second in the championship going into that race. Um, he's now down to third at the expense of his teammate. Um, to take you through the overall result then um, from the Grand Prix, because we've got a lot to get through, so we'll uh, we'll rattle through this. Um, the race finished like this, uh, with Jorge Lorenzo taking his first win for around 18 months and his first for Ducati from Andrea Vizioso in second. That's the team's first one-two since Pang last year. Valentino Rossi third, ahead of Iannone and Rins on the Suzuki's. Cal Crutchlow sixth for LCR Honda, ahead of Petrucci. Vinales eighth, Bautista ninth. And Joan Zarco, who for the second year in a row, really hasn't really figured much uh, at Mugello, um, as his run at the front row start came to an end. Um, he finished down in tenth, just ahead of the bike he's going to ride next season and the teammate he's going to be riding with, Paul Espargo, who's 11th. Uh, Hevish Sire in 12th, Tito Rabat 13th, Brad Smith 14th, that's his third straight points finish, and Franco Morbidelli taking the last point in 15th ahead of Marc Marquez, who did finish the race but was only uh, 16th. There is actually one line that I think we should mention, Dre, on this MotoGP race weekend, um, because we recorded last week's show on Thursday, so we didn't get the chance to cover what had happened on the Friday. Um, And we kind of have to mention the rider that didn't even start the race, because on Friday we saw... And we're not we're not exaggerating this, Dre. Perhaps the most terrifying MotoGP accident either of us have ever seen. And remarkably, Michele Pirro lived to tell the tale. Truly, truly horrific. That was him losing the front on the main straight at what the best part of 215 miles an hour. He catapulted off the back of the bike. Front end goes completely over the top. Um, tail end goes up in the air. It flings Michele Pirro in the air, and he lands effectively head first um, on the concrete. 
Um, I've seen said accident. MotoGP did replay it. Probably, you know, probably, probably shouldn't have really. Once, but once they you know, knew they, he was okay, yeah. They, they just yeah. You know, once he was okay, obviously they they replayed it. But uh, when is when when he hits the ground head first, he's he's out. He's clearly mm-hmm. out. And like the the fact his arms were just flailing like that was uh, utterly terrifying. Um, luckily. The worst of it was a dislocated shoulder and a concussion. When I, I don't exactly want to say that helmet saved his life, no question, mm. um, in my humble opinion. So, um, yeah, um, an unbelievable accident, one of the worst-looking accidents I've ever seen. And like, like how Michaeli was able to be on the track two days later, um, with just in an arm sling and still in very good spirits. He, he was he was asking apparently he was asking doctors on the Friday night of the possibility of him going back on track on Saturday, which which I thought was what I mean, it gives, <sighs> remarkable. I mean, it gives us again an insight into the psyche of these motorcycle racers who, as we said before, and several times are a breed apart. They're unbelievable. And um, he was still like, asking whether it was possible for him to ride again in the weekend. Obviously, it wasn't because he'd been concussed, and that was essentially you know time up son you're going home that's the end of your weekend um but an astonishing accident one of the worst i've seen um watching motorcycle racing in the last 15 20 years and it it was awful because i was watching free practice live on the friday and we didn't see the accident live but we had that i've had it before when we lost through the salon all those years ago and you, you have that horrible feeling in your stomach that something bad has really happened um and we we what we saw was andrea Iannone leaving the pits um, and all of a sudden you saw a big puff of smoke ahead of him, and you know he was obviously looking across because he'd seen the sort of tail end of what had happened, and you just saw McKinley Piro lied face down in the gravel trap, and it was just, it was a horrible feeling, because my my thought initially was, has he done what Mark Marquez did uh, two years, two, three years prior, where he, he had that big accident at the end of the pit straight at 200 plus miles an hour, and I'm thinking, please don't tell me he's hit that wall on the left, um, oh, which, yeah. which would have been, which would have been curtains, and thankfully he didn't hit anything, um, because they always say, don't they, in big accidents like this, it's not the it's not the crash that hurts you; it's the sudden stop. Um, right. You know, when when you hit something, and, and thankfully, obviously, the only thing that that Piro hit was the tarmac, and obviously, he then continued to sort of slide along the ratio. He didn't hit anything solid like a wall, um, which mm-hmm. again saved his life. And um, it it just emphasises once again. And we talk in previous we talk in previous shows about circuits like Austria, and why riders are slightly scared about places like that. That is exactly mm-hmm. why, because what another thing that saved Piro was the fact that there was so much space in gravel for him to slide into and that he didn't make it to a barrier. Um, and yeah, that could have been so, so much worse. Um, and yeah, the fact that we're talking about only a concussion and a dislocated shoulder um, is remarkable given the, the scale of the accident he suffered. And, and thank goodness McKay yeah. Piro uh, was all right. Just one of the general all round good guys of motorcycle racing and um, a guy that has, you know, very few people are respected at Ducati quite like Piro uh, for the yeah, work he puts into that operation. Let's make yeah. this real quick. When Troy Bayliss himself, who's one of the most fearless bike riders I've ever seen, when Troy Bayliss is saying that maybe these bikes are a little bit too quick going over the crest at 220 mph. Yeah, we had every right to be very, very concerned about that one. And as you said, I completely doubled down on that. McKaylee's one of the good dudes, and his value to that Ducati camp is infinite in, in the, the amount of say he has in development and uh, just how much he's appreciated in that camp. I know he only gets limited opportunities to race, which is what he really, truly wants to do. But um, he's not valued any less in that camp. He does a brilliant job, and I'm very, very fortunate that he's okay. 
Mm. It was a pretty rotten afternoon, all things considered, for Ducati, because uh, shortly afterwards, the red flags came in, the session resumed, and at exactly the same point of the racetrack, Andrea de Vizioso's Ducati grenaded itself at the end of the straight. Um, moments after he had set that all-time speed record, which he then went on to break in the race, um, the Ducati went pop at the end of the back straight. Um, so it wasn't the greatest of sun- uh, Fridays for uh, Ducati, although it was a terrific Sunday for them because they had a 1-2. Championship standings then, uh, before we move on. Mark Marquez continues to lead, to, to lead the championship. Of course, that was guaranteed um, pre-race. He still has 95 points. He's now 23 clear, amazingly, of Valentino Rossi in second, uh, with Maverick Vinales in third. 67 points for him, so he's 38 off the lead. Um, uh, 28, excuse me. Dovizioso is a point behind Maverick in fourth. Uh, Joan Zarco has dropped to fifth. Petrucci to sixth. Um, he is one of just three riders now to have scored points in every single race. Um, Andrea Noni is 7th, Cal Crutch 8th, Jack Miller 9th. Um, Jorge Lorenzo is now up into the top 10 um, with 41 points, just ahead of Alex Rins on 33, and Danny Pedrosa, who drops to 12th now. Uh, he has 29 points. Honda continued to lead the Constructors' Championship, but their lead has been cut to 22 points over Yamaha, who are now just a point ahead of Ducati in 3rd. So two then up next, and as we kind of said at the start of the show, the race of the weekend, and that's if you exclude the Red Bull Rookies race on the Saturday, which was a fantastic race uh, yeah. to watch. Um, Moto two was brilliant. Um, it, it isn't always brilliant, but this one was a four way fight in the end for the win. The top four were covered by um, less than a second over the line. Um, in fact, to give you the the exact figure, top four at the end of the Grand Prix split by just point four eight four of a second. Uh, and in the end, the winner was Miguel Oliveira. First victory of the season for him and for KTM. First win since the final round of last season. Um, and just as we were discussing, Dre, how they kind of had to get their act together if they were going to keep Banyaya and co. in championship contention and keep them in sight, Miguel Oliveira comes out with one of his classic clutch victories. Yes. Look, this, this, he has a knack for this, Miguel, doesn't he? Uh- how many times can you say a guy wins a Moto2 race from 11th on the grid? But Miguel's had a knack of just coming back from really poor qualifying sessions and stealing great results. And this was just a brilliant race. So a leading group of four with him, um, Lorenzo Baldazzari, uh, Joanne Mir, and Pepeca Bagnaia all in that leading group. But Miguel just finally a little bit more. And Miguel is so dangerous when he's got the bike underneath him and he's got the control to dictate the terms of the battle. We saw it in Moto3 back in the days. He was a genius at that. He's one of the true, um, in the, one of the true real smart dudes on a motorcycle, and he pulled that one out of the bag beautifully. It was a fantastic performance um, from, from Miguel on this one, and one where KTM really needed it, because I, I got the impression that you know KTM were fading and fading. If it was going to be anything like last season, it could have been a struggle because of the fact that you know KTM left it way too late to be competitive. But to get a, a win under their belt with Miguel, who's been consistently in you know the upper end of the field all season long, and to get into you know, to thrust him right back into title contention, um, that's a great result for not just him but for KTM as a, as a chassis developer in general. Uh, much needed, and they're doing a very very good job. 
and it was reminiscent for me in, in some respects of their uh, of some of Oliveira's brilliant Moto Three wins, where it would be a, going to the final lap of a race. You'd be going to that lap thinking, "I'm not quite sure who's going to win this," but you'd often find yourself a minute and a half later finding Miguel Oliveira as the winner. Um, he just he just pulled these out of the fire and. Even with a lap to go, it didn't look quite likely. He was second favourite going to the final lap of the race with Baldassari leading. Baldassari yeah. exiting Borgio San Lorenzo, the, the third corner, had that massive tank slap, that massive wobble, reminiscent of the yeah. uh, the way Marco Melandri's Ducati behaves in World Superbikes most of this year. Um, yep. And then at the very next corner, Oliveira pounces. Um, into yep. Gasanova Savelli. They go through the right-hander and then into the left, he just swoops up the inside and just carves Baldassari up. Balda trying, tries to go around the outside of him into the next double right-hander at Arabiata, but Oliveira just hangs him out to dry on the outside. It was a brilliant piece of tactical riding from Oliveira. And it's, again, it's reminiscent of those Moto3 races where his brain seems to be engaged before anybody else's. Um, and just in those, those last laps where you need to be able to think clearly, pick your moment and tactically think your way around a final lap. Oliveira so often is the guy that's able to do it. Um, yeah, he wins yeah. out of the fire. Yeah, he he was teeing that up from a good few laps ago as well. He like he 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 was very fast on that first sector of the track. He knew exactly where where to go. And then when Lorenzo made that mistake and he again he almost flipped a thing into oblivion. There was a big tank slapper um coming out of turn three and then miguel just pounced on it he need, he saw he knew this was the golden chance he, he may he might not have gotten another one on um because it is hard to pass on these moto two bikes it's hard to you know to outbreak somebody on these and you know we didn't get very it's many not of the like moto three either where you can just rely on following the guy out the last corner and beating him to the line exactly you haven't got that slipstream bonus really even not not so much on the moto two bikes anyway so yeah, it was a brilliant, astute bit of riding from from uh, Miguel Oliveira to pounce on on the opportunity. Um, given that you know he wasn't going, he, he was that was the final lap of the race to win that race from there. He probably wasn't going to get enough to go down the back straight. And there's not very many passing opportunities in the second half of the circuit either. So yeah, it was a brilliant, um, astute um, poacher move from Miguel Oliveira, and he he pulled it off perfectly. It was brilliant. Mm, it was brilliant, and. I, I part, still, part of me still wonders whether it is masking a bit of KTM's uh, issues in Moto2 at the moment. Because here's their first win of the year, and Oliveira is second in the championship, and he's he's closed the gap now on, on Pekka Banyaya um, as a result of that. He essentially cut his lead in half um, uh-huh. last weekend because he's now just 13 points behind, and it was 25 going into the weekend. But these KTMs still seem to have a problem qualifying, don't they? Um, because it's not just Oliveira um, that has that problem. Because he won the race from 11th on the grid, Brad Binder finished 6th from 19th on the grid um, in the same right. race. Oliveira finished 7th uh, last time out at Le Mans. Uh, sorry, finished 6th at Le Mans last time out. But he did that from 14th on the grid. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, after the first two rounds where he was in the front two rows of the grid, he's not been in the top 10 in qualifying since then. Um, and no matter how good you are, again, similar to Maverick, no matter how good you are on race day, KTM are not going to give themselves many opportunities to win races this year if they're qualifying that far back. Indeed, they need more one-lap pace because they, they, they've struggled in that department all season long. Miguel's had a string of qualifying on the fourth or fifth row. Her ref was a prime example, qualified 14th. Um, but the race pace on the bike was great. It was good enough to get Miguel up into the top three within a handful of laps. And, you know, Miguel is a fantastic rider. He's going to be in MotoGP next year. He's clearly one of the two or three best dudes in the class. Um, 
but KTM hasn't given hasn't given them a bite to maximise his opportunities. Only a handful of occasions has Miguel actually qualified well this season, um, and he's they're just making their lives harder going forward. So, yeah, the way it's going right now, um, yeah, they they need a bit more, especially in, in qualifying. But you know, Miguel is not going to pull this out of the fire every weekend, um, especially in race trim. And he's doing a brilliant job, but. Um, you know, it's, uh, KTM needs to make his life a little bit easier, I think. Yeah, because I think it is a, it is a KTM problem from, from what I, I can see as well. Because I'm just looking at how the other KTMs fare. Because if you remember, if you look back through the practice sessions for anyone that watches every session on BC Sport, like like I tend to do if I have the time and if I'm free, um, Sam Lowe's was another one. He, he was in the top three in every single practice session prior to qualifying and in qualifies 14th. Like, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, how has that happened? How has Sam Lowe suddenly gone from third in every, uh, second in the Friday sessions, third on Saturday morning, to qualifying 14th? And it's, it, I don't know, I don't know what it is with this KT where it just doesn't have that explosive on that pace because the times really tumbled in qualifying. Like the the, the pole position time was a 51.5, um, and the fastest time to any of the practice sessions was a 52.0, um, and. Sam Lowe's in qualifying did a 52-2 and Oliveira did a 52-1 and it's almost as if they just don't find that extra pace in qualifying uh, like right. the Calyxes do um, because as I mentioned Oliveira was 11th on the grid Sam Lowe's was 14th Binder was 19th Laquona was 22nd and Egeter who uh, granted he was coming back from injury he was 26th on the grid and although he was injured he still came through to score points in the race so he clearly had more pace than he showed in qualifying so this bike clearly has an issue where it comes to one that pace, and it's going to hurt them um, if they don't get their heads uh, around it. As we mentioned, Oliveira kind of masked it a little bit by winning the race uh, in the end. Um, and he did so at the expense of Lorenzo Baldassari, and whilst Lorenzo will probably still feel a little disappointed, Dre, that he didn't win the race, his home Grand Prix, in many ways, second was still a bit of a save for him, because halfway through qualifying, he was staring at a back-of-the-grid start, wasn't he? Because he, he crashed at the start of qualifying. Mm -hmm. um, his bike was in bits in the paddock, uh, in the pit, should I say, and um, he owes an awful lot of thanks to his Pons team for rebuilding his bike, giving him a chance to go back out and qualify eighth, which then enabled him to have a fight at the front of the race. Yeah, it was very, very close to being an unmitigated disaster for, for Lorenzo, and like I said, he was able to... Um, yeah, it's 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 one of those things where he very nearly made a complete dog's dinner of, of qualifying crash right at the start. And if he starts from the back, it's he's he's probably not going to get to you know race contention because it's so hard to be that quick in Moto Two and pass all those guys as well. It's a very very difficult thing to do. Um, even Xavier a nightmare start essentially at uh, you know at, at Le Mans a couple of weeks back. Um, even he only got up to about fifth in there, and that was a phenomenal ride from, from Zavi to even pull that off. Um, so the fact he was able to, to, to basically get in there right at the death and get on the third row and give himself a chance was, a, was an excellent recovery. Mm, and he went on to finish second as a result of that, just ahead of the, the battle for the podium, which went down uh, to the final corner just as the as the race winded. And uh, in the end, the crucial move came at the start of the final lap into San Donato, where Francesco Bagnaia, who looked to have really strong pace towards the end of the race, looked like he was lining up the two ahead of him for a final lap charge to try and win the Grand Prix, kind of got ambushed um, with the potential champion elect, championship leader, being duffed up by the Moto3 champion. Um, and I think there are going to be a ton of riders, Dre, in Moto2 at the moment, thinking, thank God John Mir's out of this class at the end of the year. Um, he's learning. He's learning 
quickly. He's like Terminator. It's uh, it's going to be a problem. Um, I think the phrase you used was he's going to be winning races by the summer break, and I and I think you're right. Um, it's uh, it's dangerous to uh, say the least. He is very very fast indeed and um again second straight podium and again only a fraction off the victory in this case um that was the most competitive it was like in Le Mans here was a significant gap between him and the leading group this time round, he was right up there he duffed up Peko Banyaya to get to that third place and was only a couple of bike laps off the victory by the time it was all said and done he's getting faster and faster by the weekend and uh yeah, like if I was in if I was in Moto Two, if I was someone you know that's not coming up next year, most likely like like Lorenzo Baldassare or like a Sam Lowe's, I'd be very concerned. I mean, if he was sticking around, luckily it looks like he's not, um, which is probably a blessing for half the field. Um, so, but he's looking very dangerous indeed. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not entirely sure. I mean, he's he's got a long way to come back from, but if he continues this rate of progress. Don't be, don't be completely rule that him winning it this year anyway. Uh, just yet. I mean, he's 47 off the lead, but he's 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 gaining in traction with every round that goes by. He's fifth in the championship now, and he's only 14 points behind his teammate Alex Marquez, um, which is a gap that appears to be closing as well. Uh, Marquez mm-hmm. finished in fifth position, and uh, just behind the championship leader Francesco Bagnaia, who loses essentially half of his championship leads rate. It's down from 25 points to 13, but. Given how competitive he was in the race, he can't really be too concerned or disappointed with that, can he? Essentially, it was a far-away battle and he drew the short straw. Yeah, exactly. It was one of those things where it's just like... It was a tough fight, and I know I saw the fact that Pekka was like... He, he, he did the same Pacini move from last year a couple of times where he just takes a deep line down the down the hill, and he's so brilliant at that. And uh, yeah, it, it, someone had to miss out on that group of four. It was unfortunate that it had to be him, but... Um, that's the nature of a four-way fight for the win. Someone's going to miss out on the podium, and unfortunately, Pecco drew the short straw. I don't think he'll be too upset given the championship situation. But um, yeah, um, just a, just an unfortunate situation where four guys were really, really fast, and uh, unfortunately, there's only three spots on the podium. Pull one out for Matteo Pasini. Yeah, I was going to mention him because the battle that we got, it was a brilliant battle for the win, might well have been the battle for second in the end because I, I think we're... We're probably not reaching too much straight to say that Matteo Pacini threw away a likely victory with that crash because he was just starting to break away, wasn't he? Looked like he was just starting to check out of the front and then the front of it is Calix washes away at San Donato. He's done that a lot this season. Pacini had a disastrous weekend. He was crashing so much. That's the problem. Um, and, yeah, he, managed, um, he managed to take pole in between all those crashes, but he was clearly riding right on the limit just to be up there. Yeah, exactly. And when you when you're doing that, like it, you're either going to win the race or you're going to crash. There is no middle ground on this. Fortunately, he hit the deck. Mm. He did, and a, a race of what might have been for him. He actually wasn't. If you if we think about it, he wasn't the only race leader to crash out. Because Marcel Schrotter did the same, but that was like the second quarter of the race. Um, a right. guy who just appeared to frighten himself off the road, given that he took the lead at the start and uh, perhaps got a little too excited. And the very next corner, down he went. Um, so um, so that was the end of his race as well Schrotter who's still chasing his first ever podium uh, in Grand Prix that was his career best qualifying because he had qualified mm-hmm. second uh, Oliveira the winner then in the uh, Moto2 race from Baldassari and Mia uh, Bagnaia on uh, the uh, uh, the tail of the leading group in fourth just uh, four tenths off the win uh, with Alex Marquez next up in fifth Brad Binder who as we mentioned came from 19th on the grid finished sixth ahead of Luca Marini uh, who was the second rider on the beautifully liveried Sky VR46 bikes on race day. 
uh, loved their uh, Italian-themed colours on race day. Um, Locatelli, 8th on the uh, one Italtrans bike to see the chequered flag. Chevy Verge, ninth, And then Simone Corsi taking 10th. The rest of the points were given out to uh, Fabio Quattararo, who's quietly having a very good season on that speed, up in 11th. Uh, Dominic Eger to 12th on his return from injury. Ika Lacuona uh, on the one Swiss Innovative Investors team bike to make the finish. You probably can guess what happened to Sam Lowe's. Um, he was 13th. Uh, and then congratulations in 14th and 15th to the NTS team who got their first ever championship points, courtesy of Joe Roberts, 14th, and Stephen Odendahl uh, in 15th. Isaac Vinales was next up in 16th. And Nicky Tooley, who's moved across in World Super Sport, missed out on his first championship points by just over one second. Uh, championship standings then, Banyaya continues to lead it on 111 points, 13 clear now of Oliveira in second, Baldassari is 27 off the lead in third, 6 ahead of Marquez in fourth, Joan Mia is fifth, uh, he's on 64 points, that's 47 off the lead, Vieque sixth, Pacini seventh, Brad Binder eighth, Schotter ninth and Laquona completes the top 10 overall, he has 26 points. Moto3 finally, and um, this is a race that we always implore you to watch. And um, for perhaps the first time ever in the history of Moto3, perhaps we uh, may have to owe you all an apology for perhaps building this race up to be slightly better than it ended up being. Um, to be fair, Moto3 at Michello doesn't have very many misses, but arguably this was one of them. Um, in that yeah. we didn't have the uh, the 20 bike bonfire at the front. We still had a good race, in fairness. It was just yeah. uh, only three riders at the front. And in the end, Ray, it all came down to that final lap. And. Uh, a tactical masterclass, I think we can term it, from Jorge Martin. Indeed it was. Um, it was only a free bike leading group of him, Pachetti and Fabio Di Antonio in the leading group. and um, They broke off from the second group by several seconds and it was a great tactical fight between them um, on this occasion. And um, yeah, I mean, the story of this one was Martin clearly was the fastest man around most of the circuit, but because of the nature of Magello and the fact these bikes are touching 150 miles an hour under a tow, um, and the, the length of the straight itself, it was just like Martin could not break off yeah, from DG Bezeki clearly had the strongest bike down the straight. Yeah. KTM is a bullet. Yeah, they've they've KTM's found some KMH for sure. They have they've found some speed, um, but uh, but Jackie was passing Martin and you know DG was getting involved and they were taking the lead over the line almost every single time, except for the final lap where Martin took a really wide sweeping line around the last chicane, nailed the exit, and was able to hold off. Um, DG and Bashecki um, over the line, and that was the first time Martin had not been passed going over before going over the start finish line. The whole race, the one race, the, like the one lap where it actually mattered. And uh, yeah, a reminder that you, for me at least, Jorge Martin is, is is the class of this field. Um, he's just such a brilliant all-round bike rider. His pace is astonishing, and his he's learning the tactical nows, which I think held him back against guys like Joan Mir, who was just so good freakishly good on occasion as well whereas was on point and he was always in the mix for wins and he was able to beat him i think martin's starting to pick that up which is uh a scary thought for everybody else just throwing that out there yeah it is and um yeah just to underline what the point that dre made um if you go through the lap charts it kind of makes you think as if he'd been playing sort of rear gutter for most of it because um Mahogi Martin only led across the line four times in the race. Two of those were the first two laps. Then on lap mm. 12, which was a lap where Bezeki made a mistake but halfway around the lap and then had to tow himself back up again. And then the yeah. final lap, um, where, of course, he led to take the win. And, and when I refer to it as a tactical masterclass, you could trace that right the way back to the start of the race, in my view, because we probably should have had a, a, 
dozen or so bike leading group. But the reason we didn't was Jorge Martin because he made the decision right from the start that he was going to gun it and stretch them out right from the beginning. Um, and, yep. I, and I noticed it right from about halfway around the first lap. I was like, Hockey's trying to stretch them out here and try and get as try and shake off as many of these guys as possible. Um, and basically ask the rest of the field, this is the pace I can come up with. How many of you guys can keep up with this? Um, and in the end, it was only to Gian Antonio and Pesecchi that could actually reel him back in and tow themselves up there. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, as you mentioned, Bezeki was often going past on the run up to the finish line without even needing the slipstream. He was just motoring past. Um, yeah. given how much straight line speed he had. But as you mentioned, Martin, going to the final corner on the final lap, deliberately took a wide sweeping line out, um, sacrificing the entry to the corner, because sometimes you can treat that as two apex into that final corner. Uh, he took that second apex, gunned it out of the corner, and beat Bezeki to the finish line to win the race by 19 thousandths of a second um, in the end. It was that close, so he just about judged it right. But that was the brilliance of Martin. And um, as Dre mentioned, he is looking the class of this field and it's part of the reason why we've started to see rumours. I've seen rumours by uh, some MotoGP journalists this week that Martin is perhaps being linked with the uh, ride that is going to be made vacant at Red Bull KTM IO Moto2 by Miguel Oliveira. Uh, Ooh, there, be... there are strong rumours that Martin might slot in there at, at, at the IO team, which would be a great move um, for both team and rider. Um, he does look very, very good this season, but it has to be said, Dre, the relatively inexperienced Marco Bezzecchi He's looking very, very good too. I mean, Jorge Martin, when we look at his overall Grand Prix career, um, you know, he's been around a few years. I mean, that's not to say, that's not to take anything away from what he's doing at the moment, but this is his fourth season as a Grand Prix rider. This is only Bezeki's second, um, and he's only really been a front-running contender since the start of this season. But with every race that goes by, any doubts that anyone has about Bezeki are getting dispelled, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say at this point, it's real. This guy's fast. Um, and he's, he's every race he's finished this year and seen the checkered, it's been a podium finish, which, again, says it all, really. The guy's class. In fact, it goes um, that. Every race that he's seen, um, he's pretty much, yeah, as you say, he's been, I mean, Martin, every race he's seen, he's won. Because um, <laughs> he's, uh, he's, uh, he's had three wins and three essential non-scores. He had the 11th in Argentina where he came to the pit lane and uh, the other races he's basically finished, he's won. Um, but yeah, Bezeki has, he's no longer the surprise package anymore, is he? He's, he's now, it's no longer a surprise when he's up there. Um, and the fact that in that race in particular at the weekend, um, it was the two Grassini riders and him. Um, I think yeah. really, really stuck out. Martin and Gian Antonio we know all about as front-running contenders, but um, from Bezeki's point of view, to do what he's doing, the next KTM was 10 seconds back down the road um, in the form of Gabriel Rodrigo. And um, this kid just impresses me with everything he does, not just the way he rides on track, but also just the way he carries himself, his interviews. Um, and it kind of underlines a point that David Emmett made previously this week on social media in that Valentino Rossi is going to be ending as a his, his career is going to be ending as a rider very very shortly but his his impact his footprint on this paddock is going to continue for for decades to come right. because look at all these italians that i mean if that top 10 that top 10 on the race on sunday dre the italian grand prix eight italians yes yeah it's it's bonkers and like the amount of guys in this in his camp. i mean i remember playing valentino rossi the game a couple of years ago on the xbox one and i distinctively took a look back and I realized, wait, this guy's got this many riders in this camp where it's like Marini, Baldessari, you know, Vasecki's coming through now. And, you know, obviously guys like Bulaga and Mino. And they've, like, that camp has produced 
almost a dozen quality GP riders already. And, you know, we've already seen probably the star man graduate in, in um, Frankie Morbidelli, who's already a world champion and yeah. is now... He's probably going to have another one you know, this year in Banyaya. In the top flight, there's a good chance you'll get another one in Banyaya season the way he's been riding like that camp is is literally producing world champions and like like the spain's influence is too big to go away this quick because i mean they have they just have a different biking culture over there where they're getting them on the bikes at the age of three and whatnot and that's and that's bonkers but by any measure Italy and the Rossi camp is producing quality riders at a rate of knots, and they will be taking over the grid in years to come. So I completely agree. But the way Valentino's going right now, um, you're going to see like a half dozen of his riders in Grand Prix motorcycle racing's top flight in the not too distant future. Mm, yeah, I'm just scrolling back now to try and find the uh, the actual tweet from uh, from David Emmett. But uh, but yeah, it, it stands to reason. I mean, he's. The Italian Federation, which used to run a Moto3 team, it was the, it was the team that initially ran Romano Fanati when he first came into the class. They they eventually pulled out, deciding that their work was done um, a couple of years ago. And essentially, this was the reason, because the, the new Italian Federation, the new Italian Academy of Riders uh, in Grand Prix is essentially the VR46 Academy now. Um, that's yep. essentially the role it's taken on, and it's uh, it's incredible, um, the, the effect it's having um, on, on Grand Prix racing that, yeah, essentially... Yeah, 80% of the top 10 last weekend were Italians. To give you the full rundown, the only two that weren't were Martin and Rodrigo, who were first and fourth. Um, but yeah, it was Bezecchi second, Gian Antonio third, Migno fifth, Bastianini sixth, Arbolino seventh, Dallaporta eighth, Antonelli ninth, and Pagliani, who was the wild card, who currently leads the Junior World Championship in 10th position. Um, you know, that is an extraordinary hit rate um, for Italians, the, the impact they're having. Um on Grand Prix racing nowadays. Yeah, David Ebbett's tweet, to give you uh, the full context to what he tweeted, I cannot emphasize enough just how important Valentino Rossi is for the future of Italian racing. In five to ten years' time, Italy will be dominating the sport, all because of what Rossi is doing with the VR46 Academy. Spain won't get a look in. <laughs> that's that's David Ebbett's word-for-word uh, -word comment. Um, and um, someone yeah. asked him, is VR46 putting the money in, i.e. like Red Bull is? Um, and David Emmett's reply was, he's not putting the money in, he's raising the sponsorship, but he's putting the effort in and organising it all. In five years' time, you'll be complaining about the Italian mafia as opposed to the Spanish mafia um, that the uh, the questioner referred to uh, at the moment. And uh, yeah, it's an incredible chain because if you go about five, six years, you, you struggle to find an Italian uh, right. in Moto3 because, as Dre mentioned, it was the Spaniards who were dominating this class. Um, and we could have an Italian winning this season's uh, Moto3 championship in either Bezzecchi or Di Gian Antonio, um, and one of the Spaniards who perhaps we were all looking to at the start of the season is perhaps falling out of contention in the form of Aaron Canet, who only finished 11th on uh, on the race on Sunday. He was in the third group in the end. Um, there was a second group which featured Rodrigo, Migno, Bastianini and Arbolino, and then a three-second gap back to the next group, which Canet was stuck in. Um, and, of course, he finished low down the field in Le Mondre because he had to start from the back of the grid. We all know why, because of what happened at Jerez. Um, but he didn't have that handicap this time. Um, at Mugello. In fact, he qualified on the second row of the grid. He was fourth fastest qualifier. Um, right. It finished down in 11th. And it has to be said, Dre, that the way this championship's going, I mean, he's still within a race win of the overall championship lead. He's just 22 points off the leader, um, Bezeki. But the way his season, the way the curve of his, of his season is going, he's in danger of tumbling all the way out of championship contention at the moment, isn't he? And we're in danger of having a two-horse race between Martin and Bezeki. 
We are in danger of that. It, it's 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 getting it's getting quite like you know, like crisis mode here a little bit at the moment. Um, yeah, like Canet is now what twenty two points off the top. I want to mm. say, yeah, he is. yeah, and and Bastianini, who was the other guy that we other trifecta of main contenders at the start of the year is now 40 points away um that's panic situations right because martin's not going to go away no. um i still thought i think he's the class of the field but is not going anywhere anytime soon dg the first win is coming i'm dead certain on this um he's he only will win a the lead yeah, and he, he, you know what? Right now, he doesn't necessarily have to win because he's in the mix already. Because Martin's had a couple of bad rounds, um, so you know the way it's going right now. Um, can it? Can it struggling to get a foot in? He needs to start winning and quickly because if not, he's gonna he's gonna fall out of hand because the big three contenders that are around him. Um, you know they're gonna start pulling away because those guys are not going anywhere. And kind of needs to get his foot in the door and quick. Mm, yeah, he's he's not at the moment looking like a rider who's going to put a title run together, is he? He's kind of slipping back as the season starts to unfold. Next round is Catalunya, um, before we then head off to Aston, which is a race that Canet has won um, in the past. In fact, he won that race uh, last year. Um, we've already told you the race result. As I say, it was very much Italian dominated at the front uh, with eight of the top ten from Italy in the Italian Grand Prix. But this is what it's done to the championship standings with Bezzecchi now three clear of Martin. It was eight before the race. It's now down to three um, with Gian Antonio dropping a spot to third despite finishing the race on the podium. That first win, as Dre mentioned, is surely coming. But once again, agonizingly close for Digi. Just 43 thousandths of a second off the win in the end. Um, yet he still has to wait. Um, he's eight off the lead in third. Canet is 22 off the lead in fourth. Andre Migno is down to fifth. He's on 56 points now. Um, Antonelli is up to six, the head of Bastianini now. Uh, 44 points to his 43. Rodrigo, eighth on 41. Marcos Ramirez, who only finished 15th and took the final point. Um, he is now ninth on 38. Philip Ertel, who's done very little since his win um, at Jerez. He's now 10th on 36 points, level with um, each and everyone's favourite Czech Confile, who, of course, went viral last time out. He's 11th on 36. The uh, winner last time out at Le Mans, Albert Arenas, um, he finished in 14th last weekend for only two championship points. He is 13th in the championship. Next round across all of these classes is in around about a week's time as you listen to this. And that is the Catalunya Grand Prix in Montmelo. Let's do the news, and um, with the main sort of, there's been a lot of news really. In fact, there's almost as much news that could have filled a separate show, but we'll try and rattle through it because, of course, this week has seen race week at the Isle of Man TT, and let's uh, fill you in on what's happened. Um, it's been another dramatic week, um, in particular today as we record this, as um, a very eye-watering record has been set. We'll tell you about that in a second. Um, but the race week started last Saturday with the RST Superbike TT. Won by Michael Dunlop for Tyco BMW. Michael Dunlop, who uh, over the course of this week, with the amount of winning he's done, he is now third all-time um, for wins on the island in this event. Just uh, Joey Dunlop and John McGuinness ahead of him, um, which is a pretty illustrious company to be keeping. Dunlop took the win in the Superbike TT, 
um, by the thick end of a minute from Connor Cummins uh, in second with James Hivier rounding off the podium. Um, three different manufacturers in the top three in the Superbike TT. Um, the Supersport TT, there were two C TTs in Supersport. The first of them was won by, you guessed it, Michael Dunlop uh, on the Honda 600, um, taking the win by uh, 10 seconds from Dean Harrison on the Kawasaki uh, 600. And Peter Hickman, who was riding a triumph in this race for the Smiths Racing Team, the same team he rides for in BSB, uh, taking third spot. Hickman did get his first win of the week in the Superstock TT, uh, beating Michael Dunlop by just under five seconds uh, in a close run battle between those two. Uh, Dean Harrison then took the victory in the second of the Supersport races of the weekend from Hickman and Hillier, with Michael Dunlop only managing fifth on this occasion, just ahead of Josh Brooks on the Cam's Yamaha. Uh, the lightweight TT was won again by, guess who? Michael Dunlop uh, with Derek McGee in second, Michael Rutter third. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's a pattern here, you're noticing it, isn't there, listeners? Uh, the TT Zero wasn't won by Michael Dunlop just because he wasn't racing in it. Uh, this one was won by the Mugen of Michael Rutter at the tender age of 76, um, beating Daly Matheson of the University of Nottingham uh, in second place. Lee Johnston on the second of the Mugens in third. Only six races in this TT Zero, which for those that don't follow this regularly is the zero emissions race, um, essentially the race for electric motorcycles. Um, on the TT, it is a one-lap race, and... Uh, just to show how much progress they are making, Michael Rutter won that race on a, essentially an electric bike with an average speed of 121.8 miles an hour, wow. uh, which is stunning progress, which um, all I'm saying is don't expect those kind of speeds necessarily from the Moto E Cup next season. Um, it's a very <laughs> different type of motorcycle, although they have confirmed their format for next year, which we'll tell you about uh, in a second. Uh, two TT sidecar races took place last week. They were both won by the former world champions, the Birchall brothers, Ben and Tom. Um, they took victories in both races. And the racing culminated today, as we record this on Friday, with the Blue Ribbon race, the Senior TT. And this was run, Dre, by Peter Hickman uh, of Smith's Racing BMW. And hey. uh, Hickman hasn't had the greatest of seasons so far. We're still very early days in the BSP season, but he hasn't quite hit the heights of last year. Um, but the heights he hit today in the Senior TT, um, he hit the uh, kind of ground that no one has ever hit in TT history. Um, Peter Hickman winning the race with... Uh, a last lap of the gods. Pete Ickman, the fastest ever motorcycle lap of the Isle of Man TT ever, averaging 135.452 <laughs> miles an hour. Uh, 135.4 miles an hour. And that was after about an hour and a quarter's worth of racing because it's a six-lap race at the Senior TT. Here's the Blue Ribbon event of the week. And um, yeah, something that's longer than like most MotoGP races are about forty-five minutes long. So that he's uh, to put that into perspective, he's been racing out there for a good half an hour, forty-five minutes longer, maybe twice as much as a MotoGP race in today's standards. So for Hickman to pull that out on the final lap through must have been sheer exhaustion and just sheer power of will at that point. Um, Unbelievable. I don't know how he's able to get off the black with watermelons that large. Um, un that's unbelievable um, from from Peter Hickman and everyone that's been taking part um, this week. I, I, I will continue to forever applaud yeah. um, the, the sheer fortitude of these dudes to even consider going around this track that quickly. 135 mile an hour average speed. That's ludicrous. Yeah, I mean, nobody had actually lapped the, the TT course in over 134. I mean, Dean Harrison was the first rider this week to lap at 134 miles an hour. Uh, and he'd, he'd, right. he'd done very little wrong this week. He was beaten to that victory, as I mentioned, on the final lap. 
um, of the TT, uh, CDTT. He only lost the race by two seconds. Um, and as I say, he lost it to the fastest ever lap of the course um, from Hickman, who, uh, who took the win for Spitz BMW. Um, and yeah, the, the lap record coming in to this year's TT was 133.9 MPH. Um, and Hickman's lopped a, a mile and a half, mile and a mile and 1.5 miles an hour off that this week, um, which is which is ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous, and uh, just the incredible respect that we have um, for, for just for everyone who has the bravery, just the the will to go and do this 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 year and every year. Uh, Pete Hickman's social media uh, contribution this week as well has been very very good um, with uh, whoever runs his uh, his social media accounts um, doing a cracking job. Um, this week, um, of course, as ever with the TT, there is always the the fear of tragedy. And as we told you on last week's show, we lost Dan Neen um, at this year's Isle of Man TT. Um, and I wanted to mention this while we had the chance because um, uh, Prince William, of course, attended the TT earlier this week, um, which was which was a great a great touch. That I mean, he was planning to do this anyway. Um, he was already planning to uh, make an appearance uh, on the uh, on the island to 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 watch what was going on. Um, but he also made a, a specific effort to go and see uh, Dan Neen's family um, and showed a genuine interest in a, a charity that was going to be set up in, in Dan Neen's honour. Um, and, and Prince William um, was quoted as saying by a member of Dan's family that he was more than happy to um, lend any support that he could um, to that charity in the future, which I thought was a lovely touch. Um, it was Dave Neen, um, Dan, Dan's father, who, who tweeted about this earlier this week. Um, and the contribution that, that that has been made, and basically the outpouring of, of, of goodwill and of love to him um, since then, earlier this week. Um, uh, and as ever, our, our thoughts just go to everyone affected and uh, everyone affected by the, the tragic events of the TT. It is an event that no everyone goes into with uh, their eyes wide open and fully aware of the dangers involved. And um, Dre and I will never have enough respect for, for the, the risks that these guys take and the bravery these guys show. Um, by racing at the TT, and um, and as ever, there there is often the uh, the danger of tragedy whenever anything goes wrong. But uh, yeah, the uh, the TT comes to an end, and our thoughts to everyone affected by the the tragic events of the week, uh, and congratulations to all of those who have made it through the TT safely, and also to those that have made it through the TT with silverware, including Peter Hickman, who this week, in fact, this very day, has set the fastest lap ever of the course, 135.452 miles an hour. Uh, now, as we mentioned, a lot, a lot, a lot of news has broken in MotoGP since uh, the Italian Grand Prix at Mugello. So much so that, in fact, it's even overshadowed uh, the Grand Prix we had itself um, last weekend. Um, now, in the limited time that we have to go, we'll try and cover all these as best we can. But a lot has happened, you'll uh, probably know. But for those that haven't, um, the first big story that broke surrounded Danny Pedrosa, who um, had... A, a disastrous weekend last weekend at Mugello, and we kind of thought this to come at the worst possible moment for his MotoGP career. Um, now, given how quickly the news broken, uh, the news broke surrounding his departure from the team, I kind of feel this decision had already been made. So I'm not so sure his performances at Mugello really sealed the deal. Um, right. But in in any event, Dre, it is sad to see that Danny Pedrosa is out of Repsol Honda after 13. This will be the end of his 13th season uh, in a row with the team. Um, yeah. For anyone at this level of motorsport to be with, arguably the top team in the sport for 13 consecutive seasons, just as a measure of how good they are um, as a rider within their sport. Um, and 
it appears um, based on the way the the wind appears to be blowing and based on how many spots have been filled up in the paddock that it might not be just Repsol Honda that are losing Danny Pedrosa. He might be lost to the sport altogether, which would be a crying shame. Yeah, it's 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 from what I've seen from the press, they're saying that he's got he's got a press conference um, announced for Catalonia next weekend, and Speed Week is reported that it looks like it's going to be a retirement speech, so to speak. That this will be Danny Pedrosa's last season in bike racing period. Um, it's an eighteen-year partnership, like that. As, as Honda pointed out, I mean, I'm surprised the press con- press release was so short from a guy that's yeah. given you, you know. The you know his entire adult life to you as a team, um, as as um because you know, he's been with the team since he was fourteen years old, and um, it's been an eighteen-year partnership that's come to an end here. Thirteen of which is in, in the top flight of MotoGP. Um, I will never speak highly enough of how brilliant a talent Danny Pedrosa is. Um, let's not forget we are talking about a five foot two, seven stone scrawny guy, barely a hundred pounds soaking wet, and he's throwing around the two hundred and fifty horse horsepower prototype, and has won thirty one career top flight races, won yeah, three world titles, fifty four in all, which is I think is deep in the top ten all time on on the all time wins list. Um, three world titles in two different categories as well. A two-time 250 champion um, back when the 250 class was actually probably given a little bit more respect because it wasn't just a promotion stepping stone back in the day. Um, But he is an unbelievable bike rider that's had, you know, a a, a plethora of injuries thrown at him over the last few seasons. And he's kept coming back and he keeps winning races. I mean, He's not done one so far this year, but he, I think he's had something like eight, like something like sixteen straight year seasons of, with at least one victory. He's always been in the mix. He's always been a rider. Every time we've questioned whether he's good enough for it, he finds a way to come back. He finds a way to bounce back. He finds a way to win, and he he reminds us every once in a while about how good a bike rider he still is. Um, if this is the end, it's a crying shame because. I don't feel like he'll ever have the career that was worthy, shall we say, of his ability. He just, he just for multiple reasons, whether it be injury or just the unfortunate golden era we're in in bike racing right now, that he's, he never had that top flight title, but he was a runner-up on three occasions. He was in the top three on seven occasions in the top flight. There's, there's, there's hardly been a more consistent bike rider of all time um, in Pedrosa. And again, given his physical limitations, which have often held him back, he has had a phenomenal career by any measure. He will moonwalk into the MotoGP Hall of Fame when it's all said and done. Um, and again, like a, a truly excellent bike rider. And I've never, ever to say about him either. He is a class act, fantastic ambassador for the sport. And this is him juggling guys like Lorenzo, who hey, made beef between them very public in the past he's always handled himself well on and off the track and he's got a lot of fans for good reason so um i hope it's not the end but if it is i hope he i hope he can at least win another race between now and the yeah, end of the year to on because he, he, he's a truly tremendous bike rider and there's there's only a handful of dudes in in this era or all time that are better than him mm, yeah absolutely he's, he is He's he's always been guilty of just being coming up against some all time greats at the same time. He's I always yeah. used to liken him before Andy Murray finally won a Grand Slam. He almost it seemed to be to the Andy Murray of motorcycle racing in that he'd in any other era be a 
multiple premier class world champion. Um, but he just happened to walk into a, the same era as Valentino Rossi, who just continues to deliver no matter how old he gets. So if, if Casey Stoner, who would often be his, obviously be yeah. his teammate at Repsol Honda. Um, of Jorge Lorenzo, who had those golden years on the Yamaha, um, including 2010, where Danny Pedroza was the runner-up, and 2012, where Danny would be the runner-up to Lorenzo um, in the championship. And there will always be moments, which we will sadly look back on with Danny, where he's had the you know, the, the, the the wrong injury at the wrong time, where perhaps that could have been his year. 2007 would be one of those. Sure, uh, absolutely. 20, 2012, where he was he was closing down Jorge Lorenzo to win that potentially that championship, but then he had this, that disastrous round at, at Mizano where his bike stopped on the grid and he then got taken out on lap one. Um, it just perhaps destined just not to be for Danny Pedrosa and you know you, you sometimes think I'm not really a sort of like a philosophical kind of guy but sometimes you just think maybe some things were just meant to be um, and as sad as it is maybe just it was just Danny Pedrosa was just destined not to win uh, a premier class championship but as I mentioned um, the numbers really in terms of his Grand Prix career all told are sensational and would measure up against just about anybody all time um, he started 283 Grand Prix in all classes, so he'll fall just short of 300 Grand Prix starts. Um, he's won 54 races in all classes, 31 of which are coming in MotoGP. He's also had 49 career poles, 31 in MotoGP. Um, 153 podiums in all classes, 112 of which have come uh, in MotoGP. Uh, and when you go back to his championship victories, his 2005 250cc title saw him beat the likes of Casey Stoner. Andrea Davizioso and Jorge Lorenzo on equal machinery in that 250 class to win that championship, um, which is a measure of just how good that rider um, has been over the years and uh, you know will go down as he is one of um, the greats. And, and I don't use that term lightly, Drew. I don't think we are over-egging it to say. I mean, I know no. some people will turn around with Daddy and say, well, to be considered an all-time great, you'd have to have won the MotoGP title. But... You know, how do you win the sheer level, the sheer number of races Danny Petrosa's won against the level of competition he's been up against for so many years and not be considered a great? Exactly. He's the biggest victim of, again, the most stacked era in the history of bike racing where we've got, you know, the greatest of all time and probably two or three other dudes who would be in the top 10 minimum. Um in the same era as him yeah okay some people will stand by um you know the, the fact he never won a, a top flight world title well i'm sorry but i think we should apply a bit more nuance to that and realize that he was the most you know the most consistent top contender the top class has ever seen um and yeah he didn't quite have the season where he put it all together for for, for a plethora of reasons, again, going from injury to, again, just the sheer quality of the field. But any guy that's won 31 top flight races should be in a Hall of Fame, quite frankly. It's clear that he had the quality to justify being a top contender from the moment he walked into the top flight. If it wasn't for his role in that unfortunate Hayden crash, he was still eligible to win the title that day in Estoril. Um, as a rookie, uh, may I point out. So... He's been a top-tier level rider right from the start for the last 13 years. Um, if that doesn't say Hall of Famer to you, then I don't know what does. In that rookie season, he finished second in his first ever MotoGP race and then won, right. his, and won his fourth Grand <laughs> Prix in the Premier Class in Shanghai. He is... He is up there. I mean, at the last at the last twenty years, he is in the top five riders that we've that we've seen. Um, yeah, and you, you're probably in that top five. You could add Lorenzo, Stoner, 
um, Rossi and and Marquez. And I think I think Pedrosa would join those four as the top five of all time um, in the mm-hmm. MotoGP era. Um, so yeah, um, nothing we could say we could do Daniel Pedrosa justice. We we may well if we get chance and. This might well be something to look forward to around the, the winter time when we have le- less things to talk about. If this is the end of Danny Pedrosa's crew, we may well devote a bit more time to it on a show later in the year because I definitely want Absolutely. to. I definitely want to give this guy his due for what he's done for MotoGP racing um, mm-hmm. over the last decade and a half, um, not just with Honda but to the sport. Now his uh, departure from Repsol Honda left a vacancy, and. Really, up until I think around a, a couple of hours before this news was announced, we still couldn't quite believe this was even going to be a possibility. Um, because some several riders had turned down the spot at Repsol Honda, either because they didn't fancy riding that bike or because they didn't fancy riding against the rider in the other side of that garage. Again, on both cases, entirely understandable. Um, yeah. But, um, so it clearly took a rider with with huge stones, with clearly huge confidence in himself to, to take on that, that challenge to ride against Marquez at Repsol Honda. Um, but I, I never thought, Dre, I never thought I would see this day where we would have Jorge Lorenzo joining Repsol Honda as Mark Marquez's teammate. I mean, I, I'm, I'm beaming talking about it because we're already in 2018. We're only six runs in 2018. And already, I cannot wait for 2019. The stage, the, stage, the story for 2019 is already set. Marquez and Lorenzo as teammates. Holy shit. Um, you might be looking at one of the best GP teams ever assembled. You are looking at... You know, you're looking at world titles between. 11 world titles. Potentially 12 by the time we get yes. to next year. Um, potentially 12 world titles, over 120 Grand Prix victories between them. Um, like David O. pointed out on his, on his season post the other day, they have won... And been on pole position for sixty-two and a half percent of all the races since two thousand and thirteen, when Marquez made his debut. They've won the last six world titles between them. They are the two best riders of the last decade, in my humble opinion, and they are the two best riders in the world when on the right machinery. They are geniuses and legends of the sport. They are also completely different riders, and that's what makes this so interesting. Marquez has basically maximized the potential of a fundamentally flawed bike for the last few years now for the most part and you're now bringing in Jorge Lorenzo who you know, is an enigmatic guy who you know is has you know made you know made no bones about his struggles on the Ducati but now he's going to a, his third different manufacturer in the last four years and is going to try and make history. He's only like the third guy ever in GP racing to win on three different manufacturers, which is a hell of an achievement. But if anyone can get the most out of that Honda, it's Jorge Lorenzo. He's a quality bike ride, one of the best on one of the best we've ever seen. But you've got the two best riders of the last ten years, in my opinion, on opposite sides of the garage. That is mouthwatering, no matter which way you slice it. It is unbelievable that we're lucky enough to be in this situation where you've got 93 and 99 on the same team. It is terrifying, um, but also very, very exciting. Mm, yeah, it is mouthwatering. We can't wait to uh, um, to see how that goes next season. Uh, and as I mentioned, only three riders in, uh, in Grand Prix Premier Class history have won Grand Prix with three different manufacturers, and no one has ever done it in the MotoGP era, um, which is the kind of history that Jorge Lorenzo is looking to set next year. Um, but it, it takes 
again, it takes a level of bravery, a level of confidence in yourself that, that Jorge Lorenzo clearly has um, to go and join that team. As you mentioned, there are doubts whether Lorenzo's riding style will adapt to the Honda. Of course, it's taken him long enough to adapt to the Ducati, um, or some would argue maybe Ducati have adapted to him. Uh, depends which way you look at it. Um, yes. but, he, but he's finally, <laughs> but he's but he's finally made it, and he's now going to have to start again. He's going to have to um, learn a new bike, and yeah, it is it is a mouthwatering scenario, and just to see those two go up against each other in the same team is, is a brilliant, brilliant prospect for next year. Um, and it does just give us so much excitement already for 2019, even before this 2018 season um, has got underway. Um, if I was to look at the team that he's leaving behind, Ducati, and we'll tell you who's replacing him at Ducati in a second, um, Andrea de Vizioso is one of the sort of problems Andre de Vizioso came up against last season. Certainly at the end of the season, as he was trying to fight Marquez for the title, was the complication of Lorenzo on the same bike as him getting ahead of him and just kind of making his life more difficult. Um, now, if Lorenzo can work himself into a position where he's a threat for Marquez on the same bike, might Andre de Vizioso and therefore Ducati end up being the big winners out of all of this? Because it kind of... We, we often have this theory, don't we, in motorcycle racing, in motorsports in general, that you struggle to win championships if you have two number ones. Um, because they'll often take points yep. off each other. Um, so could Andre Rizzioso theoretically end up being the big winner in that perhaps his biggest problem is now Mark Marquez's problem? Possibly. Um, for me, the like the logical side of my brain as a bike fan says, I don't think Lorenzo is going to give Marquez a challenge. I don't think. I think that team is a little bit too specialised um the bike is i think i think the the walking proof in the last few years is that basically when it comes to the honda in recent years only marquez has been able to tame it besides maybe casey stoner and it was a different sort of prototype really back then towards the end of his career in 11 and 12 but <sighs> and it's a big but we don't know how to right, end hog, it ends off at your peril yeah yeah, it's like I, I don't want to rule Lorenzo out this quickly either in case I get egg on my face and, and I look like an idiot and I end up in a future bike live intro. Mm. And that's happened. Um, so yeah, I don't want to write Lorenzo off too quickly here, but the 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 evidence suggests that Marquez, you know, is the guy to build a team around. He's the only guy that's made Honda work in recent times. Um, but again, again, it's not or it's not had a secondary rider on Lorenzo's level before either. So, yeah, open mind, I think, will be needed on this one. But um, maybe, I mean, Dovi, in theory, again, if Lorenzo and Marquez stop tripping each other up, Dovi will be the one to probably most likely benefit from it. Yes. So, if there is a matter of you know, of of Lorenzo potentially impeding Marquez in a title race. Um, yeah, Dovi could absolutely be the one to most less likely benefit from it, for sure. Because Jorge Lorenzo, without question, is not going to Honda to fulfil the Pedroza role. Um, mm. he, he, in his own mind, and again, this is one thing that we have to admire about Jorge Lorenzo, he, in his own mind, is, is ready, he's, and we have to admire the fact that he's prepared to take this challenge on. Um, you know, it, it is it is up there with you know the likes of say Jensen Button going to McLaren to take on Lewis Hamilton. You know, it, it, it's it's that kind of challenge for someone who is already a world champion, has already achieved so much in their sport, is prepared to take on a new challenge and take on arguably the biggest challenge in their sport, um, which is certainly what Jorge Lorenzo is doing. You can argue that's what Button did at the time as well, taking on one of the best drivers in the world in his own team at the time, um, and. 
yeah, Jorge Lorenzo, in his own mind, will be going there to win. He'll be going there because he feels that will give him the best chance of getting to the top of the mountain again in, in MotoGP, where he's been before. Um, and, and we can't wait to see how that, that goes next season. Um, yeah, two of the greats of this era, of any era, in the same team. 2019 is going to be spectacular. Um, and Andrea Bizioso is staying at Ducati. We told you that a couple of weeks ago. He signed a new contract with Ducati. Um, we now know who his teammate will be. It will be Danilo Petrucci, uh, who has departed the Pramac team. We already kind of already knew he was going to lead that team. Um, and I have to say, I'm absolutely delighted. Whatever we think about this potentially being a stopgap, which, whisper it quietly, I think it is, um, yeah. before they perhaps promote Pekka Banyaya onto that bike in a year or two's time. Um, but even so, there is no question that Daniel Petrucci has paid his dues, not just in MotoGP, but in motorcycle racing in general, to come from the Stock Thousand Cup um, through the shittest of shit bikes in the CRT class a few years ago oh. uh, with oh. IOTA, to, to think that he's gone from there to ride for the factory Ducati MotoGP team as an Italian that is about as good as it gets. Um, and, yeah. you know, one of the nice guys, again, of the sport, we're delighted, aren't we, to see Daniel Petrucci get this chance in MotoGP, a chance that he has put in the hard yards for and earned. And also, when we think back to the start of the season around Argentina time, he was public enemy number one with a lot of his MotoGP rivals. A lot of people mm-hmm. were very critical of him. Um, and we were not so sure whether Petrucci was going to end up at somewhere like Aprilia in the future. In fact, he was probably favourite to go to Aprilia. Um, around that time. So for Petrucci to land this ride is a good news story for one of MotoGP's all-around good guys. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy... Like, any guy that rides for, for Iota for three years deserves everything that comes to him in a positive sense. And Danilo is one of the true grafters of bike racing in recent times. He's, had, he's dealt with some real dog shit in the last few years to get to this point. I mean, let's, let's talk about an unconventional road. We used, used to ride mini cross bikes in the late 90s before, you know, the Super Stock 600 Cup before we switched over in road racing, Super Stock 1000, and then to get to, to, get to Iota. And then a bike that he once described as Frankenstein's monster, mm-hmm. um, which is... Which is story-wise correct and actually really in, in terms of a metaphor quite brilliant for how shit that bike was um but it's a fact that he you know ke- you know he paid his dues i remember in, in he, when he was riding a 14.1 jatty gp bike and he had that brilliant second place at silverstone in a in the pouring rain only a handful of seconds off valentino rossi and we were like wait danilo is real and uh ever since then he's just um clawed his way up the ladder and found a way to to get the best out of all the situations he's been in in bike racing from the Pramac team and the dogfight he had with Scott Miller to get the better bike. He did that and he's now spearheaded that team. He said that the Stadios was going to be his last year if Pramac whatever happened. Um, and yeah, he's now finally got a factory ride he can call his own and he I don't think there was anyone in the grid more deserving of that in terms of just sheer grind and dedication to get to this point. Yeah, you could say that maybe it's a bit a bit stopgappy in there because I think they're putting their eggs in the Peko Banyaya basket and rightly so. He's a class he's a class young talent and um, he, I'm sure he will fly when he gets to MotoGP because I know team bosses are gushing over this kid. Mm. But You've got to have a heart of stone not to be happy for this kid. He has done a tremendous job to get to this point. Um, And he gets the factory ride, which again, going by the last year and a half, he's thoroughly deserved of quality he's been as a Ducati rider. 
Um, and again, like I said, just, just beating every wall that's put in front of him, he finds a way to overcome it, and that's how he's gotten to this point. So even if it is oh, you know, only a short-term move, then he, I don't care. He, like, he he deserves it. I'm delighted for him, and I wish him the very best um, with, alongside Dovi. It's an all-Italian team again. Um, I'm delighted for it because, again, he's one of the real grafters in the sport and also one of the real nice guys as well. Like One of the most passionate happy-go-lucky dudes you will ever see in a paddock and i'm delighted for you see proax press release as well that they released after uh after the news was confirmed oh. beautiful i mean what a great team they are anyway they've been one of the teams of the season in MotoGP gp this year but i'll, I'll just quickly read this yeah. out to you it tells you yeah. all you need to know about this Pramac MotoGP gp team it is official in the 2019 MotoGP gp season daniel petrucci will ride for ducati team and this represents another extraordinary achievement and source of pride for alma Pramac racing it's with great satisfaction and emotion that we wish our petrux best luck for a successful future with the official team. After Andrea Inoni, Daniela Petrucci is the second rider to wear the Ducati team colours after working with great dedication and commitment with Pramac Racing. It will not be easy to see Petrux come out of the door of our garage after the race in Valencia. However, we cannot help being thrilled by the certainty that the most long-lived rider in the history of our team, as well as the one who has achieved the best results, will still be in the box next door. However, there is still a long way to go before it is time for farewell. We do not want to put pressure on you, Petrux. Just one last request. Take us on the highest step of a podium in the 2018 MotoGP season. Just choose one. How could you not love that? <laughs> that is a wonderful press release. I wish that more teams were just that genuine with the words they put out there. I mean, that 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 sums it up so well. I mean, Pramac clearly adore this dude, and and rightly so. He's like, he's been a source of goodwill. He's been again. I didn't realize what their longest tenured ride. I think, he's, I think he's done five years with them now, or something like that. It's it's it's. Uh, he's 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 been there for a good while now, and um, yeah, I said the results have been brilliant. He's done everything but win for that team um, since he's been there as well. He's had second places in the past. He's 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 punched well above their weight and. Yeah, it, it, that's a lovely press release. I'm, I'm glad to see that the team is genuinely taken so ultimate. It just, just, it, it just felt human. It just felt genuine more than anything else, and that's lovely to see. It is. Uh, Petrucci then confirmed at Factory Ducati uh, next season. Two other riders have been confirmed for next year. The first of those chronologically this week um, was at Tech Three KTM, as they'll now be known next season. Um, Miguel Oliveira was already confirmed with that team. We now know his teammate will be Hafish Sirin. Um, who, having been given the opportunity of a lifetime earlier this season, at the last minute, it has to be said, uh, at Tech 3, once Jonas Folger jumped out of the way with his uh, with his illness, has well and truly taken his chance. And it has to be said, Dre, um, with the progress he's made and how quickly he's learned and the job he's done with such little prep this season, I think Siren deserves another year. Absolutely. I don't see any reason why not... They put out the other day. He has been the top rookie. I think three out of the five races he's taken part in so far this season. Um, and if you've been the, if, you, if you've been the the best rookie in the field this year, why the hell wouldn't you get another year? Uh, quite frankly, given you know realistically you're going against your fellow peers that are also rookies who had more time than him, like Frank Bobadelli, like Takanaka Gami, Xavier Simeon, etc. He's been the best of the bunch so far, in my humble opinion. So. Yeah, if you're a fee siren, why wouldn't you get another year? He's been great so far, and he's, he's had to learn quick, but he's he's not complained. He's smiled the whole way through, and he's gotten on with it, and he's done a very good job. So, yeah, delighted, delighted for siren. I'm glad he's getting a second year. He's earned it, for sure. Siren uh, alongside Oliveira at Tech 3 KTM next year. And the final news that broke this week actually broke earlier today, as we record this Friday, June the, si- uh, June the 8th. And that came in Aprilia uh, with uh, Andre Inone, uh, 
one of the most electrifying riders in the sport and uh, favourite if your name is Hazel Southwell. Um, it, it's staying in MotoGP. Uh, you'll be delighted to hear. Dirty um, Ian. And he's uh, Dirty Ian, yes. And he's moving <laughs> uh, to Aprilia. Now, given what was out there, um, there wasn't really an awful lot else out there for Andrea Ionone to, to pick up, but he's uh, he's joined the Italian, the other Italian factory team in Aprilia. And uh, I don't know how I feel about this, Dre. I mean, it, it, it's great for um, MotoGP. I think that Ionone is still involved. From Aprilia's point of view, he's probably the most talented rider they've ever had since coming back to MotoGP. Um, sure. But... Again, I can't help but think with Andrea Inone, the fact that he's leaving the Suzuki team with... I just feel that, again, this is just gonna be, this is a rider who will go down at the end of his MotoGP as a rider who never ultimately fulfilled his talent. Yeah, it's the second really big factory team he's left on mm. questionable terms, unfortunately. And it's a shame because I don't think the Inone story at Suzuki is as bad as I think some of the media were letting on. Um, shout out to a good friend of mine, Kevin Walsh, who's always tweets about the show, tweets about us all the time. He's always in my mentions. So hi, Kevin, much appreciated for listening. He pointed out that like, like, he, like guys like Keith Ewan were pointing out Ian Oney's Instagram all the time, which was never really as bad as, as what people were making out to be. The biggest, the most egregious thing was probably turning down advice from legends like Kevin Schwartz and most likely him partying in Qatar with Suzuki top on. That was a bit thick. I just think, to play devil's advocate slightly, I think those things those things all work when you're delivering on track. When you're not, sure. they are then used sure. the sticks to beat you with. Um, no, no, that's fair. Um, um, it's weird because he's clearly improved at this, the start of this season. He's, 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 he, I think he's starting to get the hang of this now. And, and no and one has ever questioned like, his talent. No, and the, I think the problem is, is that I think, again, he's just left it too late. Yeah. And... Uh, like like of Lorenzo's situation, it's probably it's probably just come along a little bit too late. And when you and when you can snag someone like Joanne Mir, who's going to be an elite level rider very quickly, by all accounts, you go get him, even if it means letting Ian only go. Because Rins has been very impressive when he's kept the bike upright. He's in the top five now, and mm. um, and that's where Suzuki needs to be. They need to be back where they were in 2016 when Maverick was was taking them to the odd win, basically. Yeah, I think, um, I think ultimately he's as if you're a big factory spending big money, he's not a rider ultimately you can trust, is he? Um, which which sounds which sounds harsh and sounds sounds sad, but I think ultimately when you're spending that much money to you know, you're, you want a return on that money, you want wins, and you know you can't course. afford to spend that money on a rider that is so enigmatic who might well only turn up for half the races that season. You want a, a proven, uh, you want a guaranteed one on your money essentially, and unfortunately Andrea Inone, as good as he can be on day on his best days, just you cannot hang your hat on him often enough. And as Dre mentioned, he's absolutely right that his his brilliant run uh, you know, that he's had since pretty much around Kota time just came too late. Ultimately, I think Suzuki's decision was already made that they they wanted to go with a younger rider that they could they could turn into a future star. And that that rider looks like it's going to be Joan Mir. We'll confirm that when Suzuki do, but it's almost certain. It's ninety nine percent certain that Joan Mir is going to join Alex Rins at Suzuki next year, and uh, that's likely to be confirmed in the run up to next weekend's Grand Prix at Catalonia. So we'll probably be able to tell you all about that next week um, on episode 64. 
Um, so can I cut real quick? Just to say there's been a bit of a breaking news story that's come through in the last 10, 15 minutes. The Pons Moto2 team has sacked Hector Barbara. Mm. Um, this is this is a result of his third drink driving allegation that's gone against him. He was, he was convicted of that this morning. Yeah, I think he's been he's had his license suspended for a year and sentenced to 22 days community service. And Pons has immediately uh, cut him from their team. So Pons needs to find a replacement pretty sharpish. No news on that just yet but uh that's that's been breaking news in the last 15 20 minutes as we're recording this on on june 8th they could arguably have just sacked him for his performances on track because he was involved in an accident on yeah. sunday where he just skittled another skittled nagashima out of the race but uh but yeah, yeah. um it's not without getting into too much trouble because we don't pay much money for lawyers here our patreon doesn't stretch yeah. that far um but um <clears throat> but, but hector barbara it lets us say it's not his first brush with the law um, and they haven't no. all they haven't all been driving related either. Um, let's just no. leave it there. Um, so um, so yeah, Hector Barber out of uh, Ponza Moto Two. Um, not many of us will be shedding a tear on that one. Um, no. But uh, but yeah, coming back to to Yanone, he's confirmed a Prilia for next season, which has a knock on effect outside of MotoGP Two, in that almost certainly Jonathan Ray is going to be staying in the World Superbike Paddock for next season. Um, given that Joan Mia's likely signing at Suzuki is going to block off any likely avenue for him to get a factory team, uh, because that is the one factory spot that has not yet been announced for next year. Um, so Jonathan Ray likely staying put. Um, we're likely going to be talking about him a lot next week as well, because, of course, this weekend, the uh, there are two key motorcycle racing series taking place this weekend. In fact, three, actually. Um, there is the Osterslaben 8 Hours um, in the Endurance World Championship. There is the CEV, um, which includes the Moto3 Junior World Championship. They are racing this weekend. I believe they are at Barcelona a week prior to the MotoGP race going there. Um, mm -hmm. As I check ever so briefly, yep, they are at Barcelona this weekend. Um, but obviously, our main focus will be World Superbikes. They are at Bruno this weekend. First time World Superbikes has gone to the Czech Republic in six years. Jonathan Ray going for the record that we, of course, told you he was going for. Uh, last time out at Donington and uh, was beaten to it. He was beaten to that 60th all-time win by number 60, Michael Vandermark. Now, before we talk about Jonathan Ray specifically, um, the World Superbike uh, Championship have confirmed some tweaks to the uh, performance balancing regulations ahead of this weekend, um, which circus, uh, are circle on two classes. First of all, World Superbikes, um, because they've announced that they are going to hand back 250 revs to three manufacturers those are the bottom three in the championship uh they are honda they are bmw and they are nv augusta um and first of all Dre, on that point of view because i said last week that in terms of the overall rev limits i wanted them to leave them alone and in terms of the actual front runners they have um overall i don't know whether this is going to make a great difference to the racing but i think i can jump on board with this decision can you yeah i mean <sighs> I don't think I think what they were trying to avoid is they they give somebody like Ducati the two hundred and fifty revs back and then Ducati goes and wins both rounds at Bruno and then what the hell are they, what the hell are Dorna going to do then knowing that they can't change it for rounds um, probably for the best given that you know okay you know, if anything Yamaha's winning the double at Donington probably was a mixed blessing because it's now taken the eyes off the scent a little bit for Kawasaki who did genuinely struggle a little bit compared to Vandermark at Donington. So now it's not as clear-cut that, that Kawasaki's on top, given that Yamaha just had their first pair of victories since coming back with the new R1. So 
I think that's the right decision. I don't like I, like Chaz Davis was you know he did come back fairly strong in those races Linton as well. So I don't think that it's 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 clear cut that Kawasaki are, are miles ahead and need to be reined in again. Give it another three rounds. Let's see where we're at going into the summer break and then go from there. I think that's the right call. And yeah, giving 250 rounds back to their other factories and try and get them back into play is probably the right decision as well. I feel a bit bad for Aprilia who's missed out because they're, I think their race pace is not as good as their qualifying pace. And they've not been given a bump when they probably should have done really to get themselves into contention for races a bit more. But overall, I think that was the right decision. Yeah, yeah, Prilia ultimately a bit a victim of the fact that we've seen Sabadori up on the front row of the this season. We saw Eugene Laverty on the front row in Australia mm-hmm. um, and possibly would have won race two had he not fallen off. Um, you know, they've, they've essentially been a victim of that in that you know, race to, the World Superbike Commission essentially take all of that into account and have essentially decided that that Prilia is competitive enough as it is. Um, so yeah, BM, Honda and MV Augusta have been given 250 RPM back. Um, when we tell you the free practice times in a minute, you'll uh, make your own mind up whether that's made much of a difference to them. Um, but the other big change is that perhaps the more important on the more noticeable changes have come in the Supersport 300 class. Now, if you listen to our 40-minute sit-down with Greg Haynes a couple of shows ago, um, you'll remember he told us about the ill feeling that's going through that class at the moment. Um, based on the perceived lack of uh, equality between the different manufacturers. Well, World Superbikes, uh, the FIM and Dawn, have tried to act upon that. Um, now, this again strikes me of uh, Dawn and FIM chasing their own tails, trying to make this as equal as they can. Um, but here's what they've done. Ahead of this weekend at Bruno, they have essentially introduced uh, a combined rider and bike uh, weight limit for each manufacturer and it's not the same for each manufacturer um, which immediately leads you to perhaps smell a rat um, mm-hmm. the minimum combined weight limit for each bike is as follows 205 kilos for Yamaha who have struggled this year 208 kilos for KTM and 215 kilos for Honda and Kawasaki the dominant Kawasaki Ninja 400 um, which has dominated this class uh, to this point, of course, is the bike that's being ridden by Anna Carrasco, the championship leader. Um, now, whether you think that the Honda CBR500 and the Kawasaki 400 should be running in a 300 class is, again, a separate debate. Um, but <sighs> I don't know what I think about this, Dre. Again, it, it strikes me again of FIM and Dorna kind of chasing their own tails a bit. They're, they're trying so hard yeah. to make this class as equal as possible that they're rather than being proactive and trying to make changes to, you know, give us the give us an equal playing field from the start of the season, they're continuing to be reactive. And this again might well push the envelope a little too far the other way. Yeah. Um we've had chats with Greg with Greg Haynes about this. We've heard some of the half hearted stories going around the paddock about, you know, just how bleak the situation has been. I think a lot, a lot of people's talked about how bleak the Super Sport 300 class is and how factories have even gone to a point where they say, you know what, sod it, we might as well run an illegal engine because we're so uncompetitive right now that even if we got caught, the results would be exactly the same as if we just ran a shit one and, you know, we'd end up falling down the field. Um, it's not been pretty in Super Sport 300 this year. There's been a lot of dissension behind the scenes and this, I think, is only going to make it worse. I mean, they've... This is a, a late call from Dorna to try and balance the books again. And I'm not sure you can do that when you're letting 400cc engine bikes run out there. You know, Kawasaki's clearly been the best bike so far this season. There's no denying that. And, you know, KTM, Yamaha, and Honda's had to play catch up. It's, 
it's a little bit all over the place, and it, it's it, it looks like they've they've like they let these Ninja Four Hundred sneak up on the field. They've they've pulled their pants down now, and now they're trying to cover themselves. As we're as we nearly halfway through the season now, and they're still trying to fix the problem. Same with the same with the Super Sport Six Hundreds with. You know, Yamaha basically taking over the championship this year. And there's been talk about trying to nullify some of their advantages too to try and bring other manufacturers to play on that class too. So, yeah, it looks like Dawn has done a pretty good job overall with the top class, but the lesser class that they seem to have struggled with. And, like, giving Kawasaki that bigger handicap where they've got to run 10 kilos heavier than Yamaha, that's significant for bikes that small and that and bikes lacking power they've only got about 40 horsepower on Especially these bikes so, it's got so many straights on it as well exactly so. like and, they got, and, and they're gonna be 10 kilos heavier like what are you trying to do here like are you trying to say to kawasaki sorry you're too good we're gonna cripple you now yeah, we're gonna like, make a, like, a caravan um uh, next time to slow you down uh yeah and uh free practice up place today and have a guess which bike was quickest. Yep, it was the Yamaha, the bike that's running the lightest. Um, mm-hmm. It was the Indonesian Galang Hendra who won the final race of last season um, in uh, in Hareth when he was riding a KTM. Um, he won this race. Um, uh, sorry, he uh, leads this session. He leads today in pre-practice for the Super Sport 300. Head off Scott Daru. So Akamasaki was up in second. Um, it's a form of Daru. Luca Grunwald on the KTM was third. He's seconded the championship, don't forget, behind Carrasco, the uh, championship leader. Manuel Gonzalez, fourth on another Yamaha. Uh, then uh, Nika, Nikita Kalinin, um, fifth on uh, the Kawasaki 400, more him in a second. Uh, Kun Muffel, sixth for KTM. Seventh was Glenn Van Stralen, who's Muffel's teammate. Uh, eighth was Vadoya, the wild card um, on the Yamaha R3. And ninth and tenth were Anna Carrasco, championship leader, and uh, Valid Khan, the Dutchman. Um, for the uh, the Nutak Burjan Kawasaki team. Um, now, one thing I will say, um, and well, we'll have to see how the race goes. I think before we can cast a, a true judgment on this. But um, if I was to say one thing, just purely looking at practice times today, and to give them some slight credit, the top ten in free practice today in two spot three hundred consisted of uh, five Kawasaki's, uh, sorry, four Kawasaki's who were second, uh, fifth, ninth, and tenth. Uh, we had th- uh, three uh, Yamahas in there and three KTMs. So there was at least a genuine equal mix of manufacturers up in that top 10. Four Kawasaki's, three KTMs, three Yamahas. Um, so we'll see how that plays out in the race on, on Sunday. But one rider I want to talk about briefly before we move, before we end this show, because we've already gone over the two-hour limit, um, yep. is the fifth-placed rider, Nikita Kalinin. Now, anyone who uh, remembers that, kind of crazy race behind Carrasco in Imola where she ran away and won by a mile um, there was all sorts of mayhem behind that included a crash on the main straight going towards the Tamburella Chicane where a rider had that horrendous crash speared off to the right and into the wall uh, that was Nikita Kalinin um, who suffered a badly broken leg um, and hasn't been seen since now he was only declared fit um, for this weekend's uh, round at Bruno yesterday the day before we practice. He then rocks up Dre at Bruno and goes second fastest in first practice and fifth overall. He's straight through to Super Bowl 2. I don't know how that kid has done that. I really don't. That's astonishing. That's absolutely astonishing. I do not know how he's pulled that off. Um, yeah, it's incredible that he's been able to come back like that and, and, and just get it into the top five almost immediately. That's just, that's astonishing stuff. Um I, I, I hope he can carry that forward for the rest of the weekend because the Aries come back from a broken leg like that and you know, coming back like that is insane. Absolutely insane. Yeah, 19 years old is, is Kaladin. So, uh, 
yeah, the uh, the Swede. Good luck to him. Uh, sorry, the Ukrainian. Good luck to him this weekend. Um, he is straight through to Super Bowl two in uh, Superbike. Straight through to Super Bowl two uh, are the two Fatsha Kawasaki's of Ray and Sykes. They were one and two today. But warning, they were one and two on Friday at Donington as well. So uh, we're not going to make that same mistake again of predicting uh, Kawasaki dominance, uh, or are we? Uh, Ray and Sykes quickest from Melandri in third. Savadori from the uh, Aprilia fourth. Alex Lowe's fifth ahead of Chaz Davies and the uh, Donington double winner Michael Vandermark seventh. Michael Ruben-Rinaldi was quickest in the first of the sessions to take place today uh, in the wet, was eighth. Ahead of Leon Camier, ninth for Ripple Honda and Loris Baz, tenth for BMW. So two of those manufacturers that were given some revs back have got a bike straight into Super Bowl two. Uh, with Eugene Laverty outside it uh, in 11th place. Chavi Forres, his uh, problems show no sign of relenting. He was only 15th. And the hero of Donington, unless your name is Michael, uh, top right Razgati Oglu, 18th overall today. Um, so he has a bit of work to do going into Super Bowl 1 um, tomorrow. Uh, whatever happens, we will review it all next week here on episode 64 of Bike Live. Will we have a all-time victories record to talk about in the form of Jonathan Ray? on next week's show. We shall see. We will cover it all as well as the Supersport action um, as the Artex Cup continues and indeed the Supersport 300 class. Will those new balancing regulations have any impact at all on the racing? We shall see. As well as that next week we have episode... Well, in fact, I'm going to go ahead and say it now because I don't think I'm going out on a limb. Episodes 144 and 145 yeah, definitely. Um, of Motorsport 101 coming next week because... There's kind of a lot on, Dre. Um, we have not only the Canadian Grand Prix taking place this weekend, as well as um, IndyCar's latest round, which is in Texas. Um, but we also have um, perhaps the biggest motor, uh, the biggest motor race in the world to look forward to next week. Um, yeah, probably. Um, depends, it depends which Fernando you ask and what movie he's <laughs> in. Um, but uh, yes, episodes 140 and 145 of Motorsport 101 will be will be up next week. It, I'm, I'm almost dead certain it'll be double because I know for a fact that RJ had a 45-minute Le Mans preview slot in there somewhere. So, yeah, a preview for the Le Mans 24. Toyota or Toyota win the 24 hours of Le Mans. We'll have to wait and see on that one. Of course, all the news coming from the Canadian Grand Prix this weekend. Max Verstappen's looking very fast indeed, which means he will inevitably bin it during free practice free. Um, so that'll be fun. Um, so yeah, all, all this stuff coming from Canada, the Canadian Grand Prix, IndyCar racing at Texas, and of course, the preview to the biggest race of them all. Well, again, depends which Fernando you ask. Um, the Le Mans at 24 hours indeed. All of that in the next two episodes of Motorsport 101, 144 and 145. Check them out next week. Yeah, tell you what, if Jensen Button somehow wins it for SMP, I'll be editing myself into uh, the uh, episode of <laughs> uh, the Le Mans 24 hours. Um, yeah, go JB. Uh, it'd be great yeah. to see. In fact, in all fairness, um, it is it is a, a very exciting Le Mans 24 hours with uh, with two Formula One world champions um, inserting themselves into this year's race. Um, one perhaps has more of a shot at the, than the other. Um, but yeah, you can listen to all of that on next week's two episodes um, of Motorsport 101. Um, as we mentioned, the Canadian Grand Prix, um, which takes place this weekend, and indeed um, IndyCar, which of course is taking place on back-to-back weekends. It's the Texas 600 um, this weekend, so um, you'll have all of that to look forward to next week, as well as episode 64 of Bike Live as we review Bruno World Superbikes. My thanks to Andre Harrison for joining this week. Talk to you again next week. My thanks to all of you uh, for listening to this bumper edition of Bike Live. 
It's gone quite long, but we had a lot to cram in. We hope you enjoyed it. We know certainly one man who did enjoy his week, and that is Jorge Lorenzo, as he reclaimed his land. We will see you again next week.